Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hey, hey, everyone, just an important preface to this episode. Please stick around till after our review of My Bloody Valentine because we have a very special treat for you. That's right. We have an interview with actress Elaine Udi, who portrays Sylvia in the film. You won't want to miss it, so stick around until after our review, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and lovers, Valentine's Day has already come and passed, but... We're keeping the romance alive here at Dark Night of the Podcast, aren't we, Troy? And we are doing it without the aid of Valentine boxes stuffed with hearts. For a second, I thought you were going to say you were going to do it without, <laughs> without, without protection. Without lube, without, without lube, without, without pro- like without, without protection. I was like, <laughs> like, it's like bareback. I was like, God, he's just going right... He's going right for the uh, fan base, but no, okay, you're right. We're not. We're doing it. With, we're doing it without any frills. Is what we're doing. No heart-shaped gift boxes. No excessive decor. It's Valentine's Day. How do you feel about Valentine's Day? What's your, what are your thoughts on the holiday? You know, I, I I like the 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 aesthetic of Valentine's Day. I like the the hearts and the the red and pinks and the 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 colors and the candy uh, as far as the holiday itself you know i mean yeah 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 it's yeah i, I hate to be one of those like mwah, mwah, about love and romance i'm in a relationship i should be better about this but um i've just never bit when it comes to valentine's day i've never bought into the shtick of it all i feel like if you're gonna love love 365 but who am i to say Exactly. Who am I? Exactly. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's it's one of those, you know, it's like it's a manufactured holiday. We can just put it out there. It's like Mother's Day and Father's Day. It's it was manufactured to sell greeting cards and and, you know, so it is what it is. If you enjoy Valentine's Day more power to you. I like I said I love the aesthetic of Valentine's Day. I love you know, all of that and and you know like the film we're discussing today, I think captures the aesthetic of, of valentine's day perfectly oh f- f- absolutely and i and I, absolutely. I love that i love when you have a holiday theme slot and we've talked about this before but i love when you have a holiday theme slasher film that that does not shortchange the viewer with the holiday decor the holiday uh imagery so i appreciate this film tremendously for that because last week we talked about the film valentine and that film, even though we we rave about it, and I I, I love the film, it's 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 a great film. It's lacking like the Valentine aesthetic, right? Um, this film, My Bloody Valentine, the original Valentine slasher, gets it right. Like this film is dripping with Valentine imagery throughout. 
Yeah. Mainly thanks to Mabel. Oh my, Mabel brings so much to this town. It's a shame that we have to see her go. But go she must, poor Mabel. But God, that woman's devoted to her craft, and she does a damn good job. That town is. I wanted. To, did sparkling. she sell all of these fucking valentines? <laughs> did she sell all these valentines herself? Uh, I'm I'm convinced that woman is pulling overnighters alone in that back of that goddamn little laundromat, just creating all of this decor. Yes, she's she's a sweetheart, that Mabel. Um, I I think the cast of this film in general is actually quite likable. All around. Like, I I forgot about it until this viewing that, you know, I sat down and watched it a couple times, and I forgot how much, like, this, how dynamic this cast is. And even though some of these characters, you don't see them, like, that much. Like, you don't get all of the characters to an extent where you know all of them extremely well. But even the ones that you have for, like, a minor amount of time get a significant amount of, like thoughtfulness towards their characters little things that they let the camera linger on certain little moments they capture little reactions they do things to make it feel like you aren't shortchanged on the individuals in this film and i think part of that part of the appeal with this film and the cast is that it is a older cast you know this was the age of summer camp slashers teenage you know, high school, college themed slasher flicks. Uh, this one, you are following around a, a working class group of people, you know, m- mid to late twenties, uh, kind of suffering the daily grind of small town living and just the, the monotony of going to work in this coal mine in this tiny little town. They're, they're, they're rough around the edges, but they are very much, like everyday small town folks. And I think that they are very relatable because of that. Yeah. The, the cast in general is just really well played. Um, and one thing that this movie has that a lot of the slashers of that era that we've reviewed do not is they have a perfect, like at least with the focal cast, they have some really strong performers playing some unusually kind of complex characters, especially for the main three. You know, the, the focal three characters of this film, which are um, Axel, TJ, and Sarah, the actors portraying these roles, the dynamic between the characters, the backstory, it provides for like a really um, layered backstory. It's not paper thin, like some of the characters we've gotten. I'm looking at you, Beth. Uh, no, <laughs> but no, you know what I'm saying? Actually, Beth, Beth had way more going on than she needed. But um, uh, overall, I feel that they do a really good job of bringing like the average everyday blue collar Midwest individual to the screen in a, in a way that I completely buy it. Like these seem like real people to me. Well, we are discussing, if you haven't figured it out, folks, we were discussing the 1981 classic slasher film, my bloody Valentine, the original, the OG Valentine themed horror film. And what a what a film it is! What a film it is! Uh, definitely one from my childhood that I remember seeing multiple times, and and certain scenes had always stuck with me. And we'll we'll get to that point, but let's just let's just dig right into this, right? We're gonna we're gonna get our pickaxes and just yeah. mining away at this film, <laughs> picking through it 
rock by rock, pebble by pebble. Yeah, I mean, no, overall, the tone of this film is unusually, like, sweeping and cinematic at times. It's really, this film is shot really competently. Um, and right from the start, like, you get a series of really great flashbacks and everything here that um, just look pretty large scale. They really pulled off something surprisingly grand with this movie. And it also really perfectly puts to use on several occasions, uh, what is my opinion, some of the best usage of first-person POV for the killer. What this movie does, though, is it creates a, a killer that I think is absolutely standout. Uh, and I think that's going to be like the main focus of this is, above everything, this killer is one of the fucking best. Mm-hmm. Well, the film opens up in the mine, right? We're in the mine. There's two, there's two miners and they're complete in their, in their minor garb walking through the tunnels of this mine until they get to a kind of a little, uh, what do you want to call it? A little room, not really a room, but a little enclave and a nook, a nook, a nook, a cranny. And the one miner takes off her gas mask thing and to be reveal that it's a beautiful blonde. Right. And she starts to unzip her overalls and she's wearing a, a white bra and her, her breasts are all perky and she has a nice heart shaped t- tattoo above one of her breasts. And she goes to take the, uh, the gas mask off the other uh, miner and he, you know, pulls back. He, he wants to stay in his mining costume, which is kind of kinky. And, and then she starts like, did you notice that she starts like rubbing his, the hose? Oh, it's very like, phallic. Yeah. Giving it a hand job. Yeah, it's very phallic. Not what I expected at first. You know, I remember when I when I first saw this movie, I was not anticipating that the one miner would reveal that, you know, they were a beautiful blonde woman. And she gives such a dramatic, like, she takes off the mask and she's got that beautiful golden hair and it's like this dramatic hair toss. And then she's got that awful tattoo of that heart. <laughs> like, it's so, like, poorly done. It looks like it was done with super marker it, it well yeah obviously it's it's drawn out i don't think this <laughs> like, yeah like I, I don't think this broad had this real tattoo but it's it's <laughs> i want it to be real though troy i really do like i i mean i like to think this is a seasoned woman that he's bringing well he's here. either well here's the thing he's either triggered because it's a heart and we know his history or he's triggered because it's an awful tattoo either way Re- regardless he grabs her and th- slams her against his pickaxe that he had embedded into the the wall behind them and in gory fashion it just happened he has pretty good aim because it comes out the tip of the pickaxe the blade of the pickaxe actually comes out of the heart tattoo like his aim was spot on yeah it makes for a pretty cool effect i'll say like the whole like stretching of the skin it looks pretty gnarly i I, i'll say that this is a movie that continually gets, in my opinion, gets better and better over the course of the film itself, uh, which is a good problem to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, this opening is, always, <laughs> I've had, so I've had more questions about this opening, than I do answers, but yeah, so he kills this random poor woman with this awful heart tattoo on her breast. Um, and, and we're off <laughs> and, and that's, and that's that. We get her, we get her scream and it opens it. The camera goes into her mouth and we get the nice title card that says my bloody Valentine with the two dripping hearts as the double O's and the word bloody. And now it is Thursday, February 12th. And we are 
introduced then to a bunch of the town men who happen to work in this mine. They're all done for the day. There is a took me by surprise uh, right off the bat. There's a shower scene with all of the men. It's not homoerotic or anything like that on it. It's not at all, but it's, I just told uh, kind of a bold choice to start the film with mm-hmm. a bunch of men in the shower, because what are slasher films generally known for? Oh yeah. Yeah. If you're going to have a shower scene, you're going to see, you know, women showing their boobs and, you know, think of slumber party massacre, think all of the Carrie, think of all the films that open up with a shower scene. It's generally women. So it just was a little, I would say refreshing to see a, a, a scene shower scene with men, even though it's not gratuitous, it doesn't show anything. There's not, that doesn't even show a butt cheek for crying out yeah. loud. I will say that I feel with that opening, Troy, that I mean, and this might just be me as a, I don't know, uh, trying to look for things and pick things out and trying to be, you know, play sleuth as the director that I am. Uh, Does it not feel to you that as you watch this opening scene now with this whole intro piece and this random woman being killed, then leading into the movie as it is, does it not feel almost like it was like they added it in? maybe as an afterthought because there is literally there's nothing sexualized about this movie. I mean, you have a few little makeout scenes, but they're like innocent. They're so innocent. I almost wonder if they, they put that in there for the sake of having something sexual, you know, the shower scene. No, I'm saying this opening. Oh, the opening scene, the opening scene with the, with the girl, I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming we're supposed to, that, that, we're going to get there. Right. Um, but yeah, there's a shower scene. We get introduced to some of these, uh, the various guys that we follow through the film. We get introduced to Axel, uh, blonde Axel. We get introduced to TJ played by Paul Kelman. Rest in peace. Unfortunately, he literally just passed away. Uh, a couple weeks ago. So we have to give a nice shout out to him and then say, our hearts are with his family, his fans. Yeah. He's so handsome in this. Very handsome. Him and Axel are very handsome. Yeah. And ta- talented on both of them. I have some scene, uh, scene stealing moments in the film. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and then just r- various other men we get. Oh, who are there? There's uh, Hollis. Hollis, who's a lovable oaf. There's Mikey. Mikey, John. Yeah. I like that, Mikey. <laughs> oh, I need you know who I think kind of oozes charisma in the scenes he's in is Howard. Howard. Oh Howard's yeah, Howard. Like the, yeah, yeah. He's he's the jokester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's really good at it. Like he's the, the guys across the board. I don't really think there's a weak link. I'm gonna be honest. Like this cast, even though it's a big cast, like charming, likable, relatable, uh, doesn't feel very dated. Like I feel like. I could still see these people out, like maybe their wardrobe is a little dated, but like the personalities still ring true. Um, I really like the way these characters are played. Yeah, I, like I, like I said, blue collar, small town folk. They they capture that so well in this film. But yeah, we there is there is a little bit of tension though that is exposed right away because John does make the comment to Axel about something like, "Oh, I bet you wish you never would have came back to this town," especially since Axel is now dating Sarah, and Axel gets real or uh, TJ gets real quiet. He's like, "I don't care about that. It's no skin off my 
back and he like shuts the shower off and storms off. So we kind of right away are introduced to this conflict between TJ and Axel involving this Sarah girl, right? Sarah is, um, you know, we, we had a podcast episode for our Patreons a couple of weeks ago uh, for our Patreon listeners, who which was, the topic was underrated final girls. And I got to say, man, Sarah's one of those ones, I, I, you just don't really, I don't know why, but she doesn't come to mind. But then you see her in this film and she's played with such vigor and like energy and believability like she is honestly one of my favorite final girls and i i feel bad i I feel like i haven't given her enough attention because she really time and time again does things i really like well i feel like it's easy to overlook her though because even though she is like kind of like the source of the i guess the conflict between the two other protagonists i i tend to feel she's a little overshadowed by them so it, it is, it is, it does make sense that when you're thinking of like final girls that really stick it to the killer at the end of the film, that she doesn't really stick out because she, she really doesn't do anything. And, and as we get to the ending of the film, we'll discuss that. But I, I mean, I like her. I like the actress's portrayal of her, but I totally see why I never see her mentioned as like a favorite final girl. I, I just feel like she's so overshadowed by the whole TJ and Axel yeah. dynamic that it's very easy to forget that she is yeah. there. And then, but let's go through it because there's a lot to talk about, right? They all go into town and on the way to town, we see that this town is conveniently Roger called Valentine Bluffs. Which I just yes, little town with a big. I love that name, and there's like a flashing lit up heart on the sign, Um, and this is when we see the town is all decked out for Valentine's Day. There's banners across the road with hearts hanging on them. It's just a it's like a Valentine explosion, hearts everywhere. It's yeah, quite impressive. It, it truly is. It truly is. And uh, you see that when you get to, is it like the gymnasium or what? what is the. It's like, it's it's the union hall. Yeah. So they've got this hall where they basically, the, the some of these 20 somethings have been given permission to throw the first Valentine dance in 20 years. It's a big deal. The girls are carried away putting up decorations and they're just all. In it to win it. We're introduced to a good amount of the supporting cast in this sequence. Oh, we're, we're I think we're introduced to everybody, right? Yeah, aside from like the, the cops. And, well, no, I mean, no, no. Yeah, like the mayor and everything. The mayor and all that are the next scene. But for the most part, almost all of the cast, like a mo- majority of the supporting cast is all introduced in the sequence. They go into the hall to interrupt the girls who are like decorating for the dance. And yeah, we get to we get introduced to Patty. For the first time, who is a pretty prominent character in the film. I didn't expect her to have such a large part to be to, to be such a big part of the film, but she is. She is dating Hollis, which to me is just an odd couple. Uh, and then, yeah, Mayor, the mayor and Mabel show up. Uh, and she's carrying her box of, of cloth valentines that she had made. And Howard, this is when we get we get the first glimpse of Howard being the jokester that he is. Because as Mabel's going into the Union Hall, he comes out with blood all over his head. 
and scares the shit out of poor Mabel. So she like throws the box of Valentine's up in the air and they all fall on the ground. And he is just joking. It's obviously fake blood and they get a good laugh out of it. But the mayor yells at him and calls him like a, you damn clown. And then we get more as the mayor goes in, there is a scene where he, we find out that TJ is his son. The mine, Hanniger mine is actually named after them, their family. They own the mine. I, I don't quite understand the point of making it a, a point to mention that the mayor is TJ's dad when it's really not part of the plot at all. Does that make sense? Like it, it doesn't play like a big factor. They don't have like a father, daughter or a father, daughter, a father, son, you know, scene where they're discussing something. It's just brought up and then it's just dropped. Yeah. It's brought up with a lot of intensity too, because the father has this whole spiel where he's like, he's my son and he'll work on the mind. But I think, I think what it is, is a few things. A, I think it's supposed to really show just how hard the fall from grace TJ experienced actually was. And B, he doesn't want to be doing this. He doesn't have a choice, though. His parents have basically established he will be working the mines whether he wants to or not. So I think that was really just to communicate that why he is st- stuck in this position, you know? Yeah, I mean, even though, you know, is it really that big of a... At least he tried. He tried to go out west. Wherever out west is, we're never really told. I'm assuming, like, California for some reason... I don't know, but yeah, he was, he had to come back to town, which at least he got out of the fucking town, right? For uh, forever, how long it was, at least he actually tried. So I don't know why everyone's all down on him about, about leaving, but I got, have you seen this town? I'd want to get the fuck out of it too. But they, as the mayor and and uh, the mayor and the sheriff is leaving, Howard rushes out to give um, the mayor a Valentine's box that someone left for him. And he's all giddy about it. He's like, oh, who could have, who could this have been? And he's looking at like Mabel and she's like, it wasn't me. And then the sheriff or the chief makes the point to like, don't look at me. It wasn't me. Why would you even assume (laughs) that it would be? Maybe he and Mabel had a hot thing. No, no, I'm talking about the chief. The chief is like, it wasn't me. Why would you even assume that it was? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe it's, I don't know, it's Valentine's Day. Maybe some people are feeling lonely. <laughs> you got to cheer them up. You, you know, chocolate makes me happy any fucking day of the week. This ain't chocolate, though. Somebody left me a Valentine, Roger, just a random Valentine. And I was no, like, oh, tell me you. more. It was, a oh God- it was a box of Godiva chocolates. Oh, my only the finest for this one. <laughs> did you feel like a princess? Oh, you, like, I did. And I ate them all suck. last night in one setting. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. Of course you did. Anyway, so so in the box is certainly not chocolates, but it, it's made to appear as though it is. And um, the mayor is getting a... Um, ride home from so it's the chief correct the chief is is chief the chief and then the mayor is getting the ride home and he has the box on his lap and he opens it first he reads the letter it's very intimidating and threatening uh and then he opens it and there's a goddamn fucking heart in this fucking box 
a human heart. And uh, this is the first of the creative writing abilities that we see that the the killer has because he loves killer. He loves to write all of these little rhyming uh, cards that he gives to the the victims. And this one says something about remember what happened 20 years ago. Roses are I don't remember, but it's the, it's the least m- memorable of the poems that he writes. But yes, it's it is a real human heart. And the mayor is like, oh, my God, it's happening again. It's happening again. It is a foreboding image, the heart in a box. And it comes up several times over the course of this film. There's a lot of hearts ripped out of the chest cavity and put in various places. Uh, but this is the first one. And it, it is a sign of things to come. And it certainly is. Uh, and that brings us to the cage, which is a bar. It's called the cage. It sounds like a gay bar. I mean, even the sign looks, it looks very gay bar. It's like a neon pink and green sign. I would be confused if I was going. But they've got this whole, this like whole sequence stands out to me because there's this whole bit that they're doing. They're playing that knife game where you stab between your fingers and you got to stare someone dead in the eye. And it adds this extra layer of suspense over this whole scene as it takes place that really just gives me the heebie-jeebies because you know someone's going to get fucking stabbed. (laughs) oh yeah but this is when we yeah they're all partying in the bar and this is another very typical like tiny town thing to do right is you spend every waking hour that you're not at work you spend it in the tiny little town bar right i mean anybody that's grown up in a in a small town kind of knows that this rings very true to life Right after these guys get out of the mine every night after work, they go and they 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 celebrate with a nice cold one. So all the guys are in this bar. The girls are there. Axel and Hollis are playing that knife that game where your like fingers are on the table spread out and you're stabbing between them with a knife, really f- fast to see who um who's going to cut their hand first. And I remember I, st- I I used to do that as a kid, and I thought I, I I'm assuming it was because I saw this movie. Right? Have you ever done that, or you just? I would never, absolutely fucking not. There's, no, oh my god, I'm no, I'm too. Listen, I'm, I'm clumsy. I'm gonna miss the fucking mark. I'm gonna take a finger off. There's no chance. You're never gonna get me to play that butter knives or whatever <laughs> butter. the fuck it's called. No, <laughs> but uh, but it does add so much suspense to this already suspenseful sequence. While the bartender, this fucking it's ominous happy. bartender, his name's Happy. His name's Happy. His name's Happy. Well, he sure ain't fucking happy. <laughs> right? This this guy is just he is looming and ominous and mysterious and filled with rage. And every time he talks, literally every line he says in this movie, it's always like, "You're gonna regret the day. You're gonna all regret the day you threw a party." Like it's so jam packed with just dramatics it is so over the top but i fucking love oh well we learn we learn the history of the valentine's dance from happy because he basically tells the story that 20 years ago on the night of valentine's day and the valentine's day dance there were seven miners that were left in the mine the two supervisors they were aching roger to get to this valentine's day dance so they left the remaining five miners down in the mine without checking any of the methane levels first. And so once the two supervisors are out of the mine, the, the five down there basically were 
trapped because one of them lit a match and exploded the whole fucking thing because the methane levels were so high they weren't checked. It buried five of them alive after weeks of digging. He says six weeks. Now, Roger, I have a hard time buying the fact that any of these guys lived for six weeks. What were they drinking? Right? You can't live without water for longer than, what, three days? Yeah. No, absolutely. But anyways, he, he says six weeks. He was the one that actually found the one sole survivor, and it happened to be Harry Warren. Oh, this reveal. And when he... <laughs> I know when he finds him, he's like screaming and then he's like gnawing on an arm. He's eating his coworker. That's how he survived. Doesn't explain still how he got water, but at least he had food in the form of human flesh, the limbs of his. Yes. They go big with this fucking whole flashback as they should. But you know what, man? I mean, hats off. This whole sequence, I it's one of my favorite like killer backstories. I, they all get a backstory. Every every great killer has like a flashback. This one, I fucking love it. Like it's when they show the whole fucking collapse and you see all the people like climbing down trying to get them and everything. Like they use like big fancy sets for this. I mean, I don't know how they fucking pulled it off. I don't know how much of this was a built set. How much was actually in a mine? Though most of it feels like it's in a real goddamn mine. Um, but these sequences, like when they find him buried under all of the debris and everything, like you could tell that they really like pulled out of the, out all the stops for these sequences within their means because it's damn impressive. It is very impressive. You know, I mean, that's the thing is this film, at least the production value is pretty, it looks pretty great. The film itself looks pretty great. You can tell that they they took a lot of care and time to to make the film look look as it should i mean I, i'm i'm assuming yeah i don't know if this was a set or if it's a real mine i know on imdb one of the trivias was that it was filmed actually in it, it was filmed in re, a real mine but i don't know like this particular scene with like the mine exploding if that was really the mine or if they build a set i'm assuming they probably build a set right they're not gonna blow up a real a real mine and risk yeah i <laughs> I think that they're using a real mine for a majority of the sequences, but anything that's to do with like mine collapse or the buried, you know, yeah, them being buried under the debris, I think it was a set. Regardless, we find out that Harry Warden spent a year in the mental hospital, which to me seems like a very short amount of time if you were found eating your your coworkers. But hey, that's just me. But he spent a year there. He gets out, and what is what does he do? On Valentine's Day, the following year, he goes to and kills the two supervisors that left him in the mine. So we get this flashback of him like showing up in one of the guys' houses as he's getting ready for the Valentine's Day dance, and Harry Warden's in his full mine gear and fucking pick that pickaxe the guy in the chest and then rips his heart out and he puts the hearts in Valentine's boxes and leaves them at the party. And warns the town never to have a Valentine's dance again. That's where it gets a little specific for me. Like, I would have been literally fine with him being like, and he was found buried alive. And he had eaten half of the people down there with him as well. And then he was put into a asylum. And that's where he's been till to this, been till this very day. Like, that, I would have been fine with that. But then they go, and they're like, but then they saved him. And then he came back the next year, <laughs> and he killed those two supervisors. 
and he cut their hearts out and put them in heart-shaped boxes. Like, it is specific. I mean, they... This killer has motives. So, um, but it's fine. You know, like, uh, the effect of the open chest, like, the chest cavity, always gives me the goddamn heebie-jeebies. So, I, I enjoy... I really enjoy almost everything about this flashback. I think it really adds to the movie. It does. It gives us it gives us a decent backstory. Is it convoluted? Yeah. It could have just been simplified a little bit. Simplify it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The group then, they kind of, they ignore Happy. Like, none of them take this guy seriously. And I, I, I can see why. They just, like, tell him to shut up and that he's being ridiculous. And then they carry on with their shenanigans, which includes a song they sing to poor Harriet about her being a virgin. I tried to listen to the lyrics of this song, Roger. I just got the fact that they're making fun of Harriet for being a virgin. Um, Sarah gets up and right away, uh, Axel's like, where are you going? She's like, I just want to get up and play some music. Is that okay? We get, and I, I, I like that the film does this subtly. It's not, it's not in your face. It's not like they're hammering it into the viewer, but there are a lot of these little tiny moments where Axel is saying something or doing something to Sarah that uh, when you look at it at a, in a broad picture, you just see kind of how possessive he is, but he's not like a asshole. Like he's still a likable character, but you definitely see these little glimmers of him being like possessive controlling of her. And I, I like the fact that they don't, flat out because any other film would have made him like be oh you sit down you're mine but he never it never goes that route it's just these little pieces of dialogue or little nudges that he gives her or little grabs that he gives her at certain moments that show that he definitely has some possession slash trust issues that he should work through she gets up to play the jukebox and tj is playing like shuffleboard and she very nonchalantly says you know it's your own fault right and he's like yeah i know and she's like then you just need to accept things the way they are and he's like well maybe i don't like the way things are and like storms away um so again you're you're kind of getting this dynamic now and we're we're learning about the these three protagonists relationship i want to be like sarah listen don't worry, I get it. I also find TJ's in- instabilities wildly sexy as well. Because while <laughs> Axel reads very controlling, TJ is reading very angry and very unstable. And so what they do is they create this really great dynamic where for a while you're... I don't know about you, but I, I would remember suspecting the one to be the killer. And they do a really good job of baiting you into that um, because neither of these guys really has their shit together. One of them is really shitty in his relationship. The other one is really shitty in his overall ability to socialize as a normal person. Yeah, neither one of them to me like screams like this is the one you should pick, right? And I think that that's another charm to this movie is that it really carefully gives these two male characters a lot of subtlety to them where it is not like most films. We'd be like, Oh, Oh, you need to pick this one. Oh, everyone knows you should. But in this film, it doesn't do that. Like you can make a logical case 
before the ending reveal that either one of these guys or, or would be, you know what I'm trying to say? Like there's no clear choice. Like the film is not like pushing one over the other. Like I, I can see very easily where you'd have like half the people watching the film being like, Oh yeah, you should be with Axel and the other half being like, Oh no, no, you should be with TJ. Right. I just like that the film plays that fine line and, and lets the audience kind of make their own decisions because none of these, neither one of these male characters are like a glowing representation of what a boyfriend should be. Right. Right. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So the mayor and sheriff are at the coroner's office and we find out that this was actually a human, a real human heart of a young woman who we are assuming is the girl that got killed at the beginning. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're trying to get a hold of the mental hospital, but they can't because they want to check to see if what's up with Harry Warden, if he's still there, what, what his status has been, but nobody is answering. So they're gonna have to call the next day. And all the doctor can say is, Oh, well, it looks like Harry Warden's back in town. Yeah. That's, that's, we're jumping to a quick conclusion. I mean, he is right to a certain extent, but I mean, that is jumping to a conclusion. I think that'd be the last on my list of suspect, you know, things I suspect that going on. But I mean, I guess I mean he, like I said, he's right. I mean, somebody is killing people and cutting hearts out. So I don't know. I mean, it sounds like this is standard fare for these people. <laughs> well, I mean, that was his. I guess that was Harry Warden's mo. But he's only killed. Like it's not like that's another thing. It's not like Harry Warden like came back year after year after year. Right. And I understand the fact that oh, it's because they didn't have a Valentine's day dance, but he only did this one time. Right. Yeah, it is a, it, it's a, it's a, a, a large conclusion to jump to, but I guess it makes sense. Who else is going around cutting people's hearts out? We go to the laundromat with Mabel. Oh, washing Mabel. her sweet. Mabel. I love Mabel. I know. <laughs> you know who Mabel reminds me of what's that broad's name. And we, we just covered it for Christmas. It reminds me of uh, the broad in Silent Night, Deadly Night. That was the older lady that worked at the toy store. Oh, Miss. Um, oh, what's I know her name. Oh, my God. Yeah. I know. We'll think of it. Yeah. But that's who Mabel reminds me of. Just a sweet, warm. Yeah. Warm, uh, you know, quick witted older lady that does not deserve to have what happens to her. She's washing her hearts and she is so proud of these hearts. You see her like fluffing them and making sure they're all ironed out and everything. While she's in the back room getting her cup of tea, the miner comes in and leaves her a Valentine's. When she comes out, she sees it on the counter and of course she's so excited. She's like, oh, who could have left me this? She opens it up and we get the infamous Valentine card that says... Roses are red, violets are blue. One is dead, and so are you. And as she reads it, the lights go off, and all of a sudden, the miner comes out from behind the corner and, and attacks her. And this is a pretty effective scene. Like she's trying to run away, he's following her. There's a scene of her like busting through the um the back her back like room that has the, the streamers, the Valentine streamers hanging down the doorway and she gets through, but then he grabs her and yanks her back. 
There's a close-up of her face as he grabs her and yanks her back. He throws her on the ground and unfortunately plants the pickaxe in poor Mabel. The the whole buildup to this sequence, I think, is wildly suspenseful. Um, we like I mentioned earlier into this some of the standout aspects of this movie and why it really works, and I think that this movie truly mastered the the artistry of the POV. I think that they let it linger just long enough to make it extremely uncomfortable. Uh, the usage of the mask, which is something we've heard, you know, similar style with Michael Myers and you know Jason and so forth. But this specific mask, because it's through this like metallic, you know, it's it's a cool, it's a minor mask. It has a very very thick, heavy like wheeze to it. Um, and it's pretty chilling. And this whole moment of him walking through the, uh, the the laundromat and, you know, kind of stalking through and watching her. And you see him place the heart-shaped box on the counter. And you see it all from his perspective. And I just really think it's uh, a chilling lead up to what happens. When it gets to the actual attack, I think this moment is rather visceral. Um, she's doing a lot of things to defend herself, but she's like a little old lady. She's like weak, but she's throwing the doors of the washing machines open, trying to like, you know, get things in the way of, of between her and the killer. And she's tries to struggle. She tries to fight and her screams are really very pathetic. It's, it's in some ways, it's almost like a difficult scene to watch because they do get really visceral with the moment. Oh, but it's it's only the beginning, right, of what happens to poor Mabel. We we find out here in a little bit how grisly her fate really was. I also like the sound design because anytime the killer is stalking or on screen, we do get the heavy breathing through the mask, through the mining mask. The get. <gasps> <sighs> yeah. I, I really. <clears throat> oh my god, that made me cough, Roger. <laughs> I really, uh, I really like that, that whole sound of him breathing because we hear it throughout the film. Anytime he is like stalking someone and we don't actually see him on screen, we can hear the breathing. You know, I, I think that's really effective. Uh, how the, the group, the gang of guys are at, it looks like a junkyard, right? They're, they're, they're looking for a part for a car. So we have Hollis, Howard, Mike are looking for this car part under the hood of a car. Axel is in the car playing a harmonica when TJ comes in with him and actually gives him a bottle of whiskey that they can, that they kind of share. They each take a drink of it. And TJ's like, I guess we need to discuss our problem. And Axel says, well, not really, because we don't really have a problem because Sarah is with me now. He's like, you left town. You need to back off. And then TJ gets up and gets in his face and is like, well, if you want to fight, we got it because we both know who Sarah really wants. Whose side would you take here? I would, I'm on, you know what? Here's the thing is I am totally at this point, my mind kind of shifts back and forth, but at this point I'm with Axel, like this dude up and left town. He didn't. And we find out he didn't like bother to communicate with Sarah once he left. So why does he come back to town and automatically assume that she should just drop everything that she's built since he's been gone to go back to him? And I'm sorry, Axel. Hey, he's a good looking guy too, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'll take either. Exactly. It's not like, you know, I actually personally, to be honest with you, I find Axel more attractive than TJ uh, physically, but 
personality wise, you know, as the film goes on, TJ does start to become the more attractive character. But at this point, I'm all with Axel. Like, TJ, it's your own fucking fault. Back off yeah. my girl, right? What about you? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. But TJ's bold. He's real bold, but he looks good doing it. So, like, at the end of the day, I think he knows that he's just got a sex appeal, you know, that, that Sarah can't d- deny. She can't say no to it, obviously. Pretty soon he's sweeping her off her feet, taking her to, you know, seaside views. <laughs> so, like, so, I mean, he's got a certain something to him, and I think he's just aware of it. He's also just kind of got some crazy, too, and he's not so much aware of that. But um, I, I think you're right. Like, out of the element of respect, I would say Axel's earned the title of her boyfriend if he left, you know? Yeah, and Axel does have a little bit better, um, or TJ does have a little bit better style, too, especially when he wears the, uh, he he has he likes to wear scarves tied around his neck. Oh, my God, with like a low button. Oh, my God. With a low, buttons. oh, I was just going to say, with a low button shirt with his chest, just, oof. That hair, I want to run my fingers through it. But even Hollis comes, and after he sees this fight, he even comes and tells TJ that you're, hey, you're going to hard on Axel. Like this is your own doing, you know that, right? And TJ, like, yeah, you know, he's like, it just, it just sucks because I do like Axel. Uh, I really like the guy, but I guess things change. I mean, it sucks that nothing can stay the same. So I do like that the characters are given a little bit of these small. Granted, they're very small, small, quieter moments where they do kind of have some layers and dimension built to them through their dialogue. It's few and far between, but this is kind of a good example of like Hollis and TJ's relationship. You can tell that they can fight in each other. So I do like that we do get these tiny moments like this. Well, and this film does a really good job of taking some of the smaller characters and kind of intertwining them into these moments like Hollis, for example, his involvement in everything that goes down. This movie is is structured really well in that there's a lot of moving parts. A lot of things are going on uh, and that it gives a believable reason for all of these characters to be kind of, you know, uh, operating the way they are within this universe. Um, but yeah, no, just all very completely believable scenarios. The scenes between the two guys, the two focal men, uh, Axel and uh, TJ, really, I mean, st- some standout acting for the genre, I would say. These two guys provide quite a dynamic. I, I really enjoy watching them work off of each other, especially in this scene here uh, w- where they kind of break into this little argument, you know? Exactly, exactly. I, I do like these moments. It's now it's the next day. And I, did, did you notice what day it is? I thought this was clever. It's it's what? Friday, February 13th. The yes. 13th. Oh, my yes. God. I thought that was super yeah. clever. It's Friday the 13th. Clever. Yeah. So this film knew what it was doing. It knew what it was doing. Oh, it was aware. The The sheriff is talking to this mental hospital receptionist. Can we say the, this broad steal of the show? Oh, she's not having it. Oh, I love her. She, she is <laughs> done. She's fucking done. She is over it. God bless this woman. We've yeah, all she, been there. Oh, she just she's like, I told you, I have no record of him being here. And he's like being real aggressive with her. And she's like, I don't know what to tell you. It's one of three things could have happened. He either died, he got transferred, or he was released. But I don't have records of anything. So I don't know what to tell you. 
<laughs> and he won't he won't accept it. He's like, you're gonna fucking find out. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> she just like hangs the she's, phone up. Yeah, she's she's done. She's fucking done. Uh, but yeah, I, I love that moment. Uh, I do find it intriguing the way that the the story is unfolding here. You've got like kind of these two stories going on at the same time. You've got the group of like the twenty somethings, and then you have like you know the the police and and the local government kind of working to keep the story quiet uh, under wraps. And a lot of times, I can find this to be something that is distracting uh, or takes me out of the film. You know, when you have two running storylines at the same time that are very prominent. I mean, both of these stories take an equal amount of time for the most part. Um, I, f- I find the, the scenes with the chief to be just as interesting, to be honest. They did a really great job casting these players as well. Like all of these individuals are just as strong. You're right, because we have talked in the past, Roger, with a couple of the films that we review where there are police investigation aspects to the film where we get, we intercut with the the action of the film to have to go to like a pre a police procedural. I'm trying to think of a film that we've covered. I know we have, and we we've talked about it, how it interrupts the pacing of the film. This one, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. I think it's, it's, it's handled very well. It's not like overwhelming. The, the scenes with the police procedural stuff are very brief uh, but they give us information. They they spoon feed us information. It's not like it's leaving the action of the film for a long time and just it, it happens a few times. Gives us some good information. It builds enough of of a mystery about could this really be Harry Warden that's back? So I don't yeah I don't mind it either. I'm usually not a fan of like police investigations in slasher films, but this one I don't mind. Yeah, it builds in unison, I think, is one of the things that works in its favor is you've got these two, you know, these these two ongoing stories, but they kind of lean in on each other for further development. Um, And when as the movie climaxes, they both they both kind of blend together into one culminating story, as you'll find out. But they do a really good job of dispersing equal amounts of time for good, solid payoff, like the moment coming up here where the where the officer returns to the uh, laundromat. Yeah, before that happens, we do get a, a, a small scene with Patty and Sarah walking down the street. And Patty is is telling Sarah that she needs to pick one of the guys, right? She's like, pick one. Which one are you going to pick? You got it. You can't have them both. She's like, well, I don't want them both. And uh, Sarah does reveal that it's kind of working her nerves that that she's put in this predicament. And she's like, I don't even want to go to this dance now because of how these two are acting. I get a girl. Yeah. And Patty's like, oh, you got to go because you got to see my dress. It's going to be cut up to here, <laughs> cut down to here. And then she's like, I may not get out alive. Serious, uh, Sally is uh, confident. Patty. Very confident. Or Patty. God damn it. Sarah Patty. I, I said Sally. <laughs> Patty is um, Patty is extremely confident. Uh, she is confident in her apparel. She is confident in overall just – I say this because I, I find it interesting how her character ends up uh, evolving as the film goes on. Like you look at Patty and she thinks she's this big vivacious like personality and she she strikes me as someone who would do well in like a situation of like, I don't know, high stress. 
I'm trying to be vague here. Uh, but she she is the first one to crumble. And like I did not anticipate that because of the way this actress played her in these initial scenes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because she comes off as being like you very like you said, very strong, very uh, strong willed. But that is not how she ends up. <laughs> yeah. Now we get the sheriff going to the laundromat to look for Mabel. And as he goes in, he's looking around. You can tell something smells because he keeps sniffing the air and like smelling his hand and his cigarette. And he notices some of the hearts that were uh, taped to the wall are now taped upside down. A nice little touch, right? And he notices like the dryers are still all going. So he opens the first one and it's just full of like the, the hearts that she was watch- washing and just various apparel. Uh, and then. All of a sudden, the second dryer next to him opens, and what falls out is fucking Mabel's burnt to a crisp fucking body. Oh my god, it's horrifying. It's charred. It looks like a fucking rotisserie chicken. <laughs> it's well, there's this. Well, okay, so it depends on what version you watch because we do have to mention that there's the heavily cut version that was the initial release, right? where virtually all of the gore is cut out. And then there is the newer release, thank God, that we got through the Blu-ray that has all of the gore back intact, the the gore that was cut. Because if you watch the uncut version of this film, Roger, I don't know if you've watched it lately, it is virtually free of any gore. They cut almost everything out. That's so wild. This scene, including like you don't even see like in the a cut version, you you see like a split second of her body in the original version with the gore intact. You see like the body for numerous seconds as it's still spinning around in the dryer. The dryer door is open, but the 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 tumbler is still going, and the body is just flapping around. Oh, it's disgusting. The, whoever did that effect, it. I mean, I would, that's what I would imagine a little old woman who was stuck in a dryer on full heat overnight would look like, or smell like, I mean, the scent, the the stench coming from that woman must just be mind blowing. Uh, but God, I mean, the effect really is like, you get like a a tight shot on her, like cooked eyeballs. They're like white and like her, her skin is like red. She looks like a, like a lobster that's been like boiling overnight. It's just so gross. It's such a wild effect. Really well handled. Well, and then that's not the end of it because as the coroners have her on the uh, thing, he notices that there is a Valentine card like stuck in her fucking chest. He just reaches right in. Yeah. And it says happened once. It happened twice. Cancel the dance or it will happen thrice. And the mayor is now in there and he's like, okay, that's it. We're canceling the dance tear every decoration down. Um, the dance is canceled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, understandable. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I dare say under fucking Seanable. And he says, we're telling everyone Maple died from a heart attack, which is. Yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. T- take her out back and tell everyone she died of a heart attack. The town goes full footloose at this point. Like there will be. No dancing whatsoever. There will be no dancing. There will be no joy. Uh, it's very footloose. It's just there's no musical numbers. No musical numbers. No anything. Yeah. The uh, Back at the mine, actually, um, Axel and TJ do get into a sort of a minor altercation. 
because Axel is being very aggressive towards TJ, telling him what he needs to do. You need to go down there and that basically barking orders at him. And TJ is like, you're just giving me a hard time. So they almost get to an altercation. The supervisor comes and breaks it up. So again, tensions between these two are starting to rise quite a bit. The sheriff goes to the union hall to lock the door and all of the characters are there freaking out because there's going to be no dance. And the Sylvia character, she's like, well, Mabel would have wanted the dance after all her hard work, right? But it's not going to happen. Quitting time at the mine. Axel, as TJ's leaving, Axel goes after him very aggressively. And he's like, we have something to settle. And TJ's under his breath. He's like, yeah, we do. But he just like takes off. Doesn't even entertain Axel, gets in his car, drives into town. And basically there's a scene of him like forcing Sarah into her, into his car. She's like, I don't want to go with you, TJ. And he's like, too bad. Get in. Yeah. It, it's a, like a borderline abduction. <laughs> like it really, was... like it's real close to him just abducting this poor girl, but he's got such a cool car. I mean, I would want to get in that car. And I got to say, you know, the lady doth protest, but you cannot deny the palpable chemistry between these two. There is, there is. He takes her to, um, to one of their past spots. It's like this beautiful lakefront. And this is where we get a very mature adult conversation. She starts crying and she's like, why have you, why did you just leave me? You left me here. You didn't write. You didn't call why? And he's like, I know he's like, I, I couldn't, you know, my, I, I basically fell on my ass out there and I was humiliated, but I made a mistake and I want you back and I love you. And then they kiss, you know, I've got to give it to, you know, the writing in this film and the performances. Um, I feel that this movie gives a, in the sense of like emotion and, and when acting the highs and lows of the emotions that these actors are challenged to go to, it's, I think it's pretty rare that you get this kind of caliber of uh, sentimentality or, you know, this romance between these two characters, they really give it time to like breathe and develop more than I used to within the genre and I appreciate it because I, I do, when you get to the end of the film, I do care about the people involved. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in a very adult moment. That's what I'm saying. We're dealing with a film that is giving us mature adults with, with adult problems. I mean, even though honestly, this problem of this little love triangle does seem like it could come right out of a, like a high school musical movie. Right. But I think it's handled in, in, in a more adult like way, a more mature way than you would get like on a high school level. Yeah. Yeah. There is this jump scare with Sarah walking at night as she's walking to the bar uh, and she's hearing a noise and she bumps into the sheriff who the, uh, when we, when the camera flashes around, all you see is like the light of his flashlight. So it looks like it could be the minor helmet, but it's not, it's just the shit. Uh, this, this whole flashlight startle is well fucking done. I mean, I gotta say, walking home in this town at night is a thing of nightmares. Uh, it's a terrifying place to be. I can't believe they allow the women to walk alone at night. But when she does stumble upon this goddamn flashlight, like, it's... There's a lot of moments in this film where they use, like, soft focus or racking focus really well. 
to uh, amplify the element of surprise or really like see things as the certain characters are experiencing them. There's a scene later involving a nail gun that does something similar with a character's POV that really does it some favors, I think. But this whole moment, the way that they do this whole like light startle, because the, the, the brightness of this light on this mask is often so startling that you can't, you can tell the characters can't really get a focus on it until it's on top of them. And this moment right here, I think, introduces that really well. She can't even tell who it is until she, you know, the sheriff or the chief is right there in front of her. Well, luckily he's out there walking around considering he knows that fucking two people have been brutally murdered in the town already. You know, there's no warning to these poor women not to walk alone at night. (laughs) Back at the bar, the group is at the bar again and happy. The bartender is very adamant that Mabel did not have a heart attack, that Harry Warden got her. This bartender has been just dying to talk about death. He's been chomping at the bit, and he's such a shit talker, too. He's like, don't say I didn't warn ya, assholes. Like, he's... Yeah, he's calling... He's being very... And this is a bar... He's the bar... Is he a bartender, or is he the... Just a uh, patron? I'm pretty sure he's the bartender. That's what I gathered. Okay, because I'm like, I don't know what bar you can go into where the bartender can just freely call you an asshole. That sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> but he's like, heart attack my ass. The group then decides to, since the dance was canceled, that they are going to have their own Valentine's party, and they're going to do it at the mine. Sounds like the perfect plan, right? Happy's like, you guys are stupid. You're going to regret this. And they're like, oh, shut up. And even Axel gets in his face. and He's like, don't you tell anyone what we're planning. And Happy's like, oh, you're going to be sorry. I mean, I, I, do you think they're trying to paint like Happy as a red herring? Um, Somewhat, yeah. But I think he's, I think Happy is merely the uh, crazy Ralph. Every one of these films needs yeah. them. You know, needs someone to provide some exposition. And he does that. He gives exposition in heavy, heavy servings in this film. But uh, and then once his purpose is done, he's then discarded. Yeah, I was going to say, he's kind of set out for a red herring. And then right away, he's, he's killed off because we, we after this bar scene, we see him out at the mine. And he's drunk. And he is just having the time of his life because he's setting up a fake minor dummy. Complete with helmet, pickaxe. He's putting it in in a um, storage room thing or a, what is it? A outdoor storage thing. Yeah. Uh, so that when someone opens the door, it's going to fall out okay, at them. This is going to come out at this them. This mischief is going to kill somebody. Well, it's a real pickaxe. Yeah, he's going to get a child, like or not a child, but one of these twenty somethings is going to drunkenly open the door and walk fucking right into it. So this man, I think, gets what's coming to him. Oh yeah, he opens the door as this, as this thing falls on. He just thinks it's hilarious, and he has it all set up, and he's starting to walk away. And he decides, oh my god, he needs to see this one more time. So he turns back around, goes to open the door, and now inside is the real killer miner who slams the pickaxe up through the poor Happy's chin so that it, the tip of it comes out his eyeball. This is a really cool effect for 1981, I gotta say. Oh, it's really, really well done. He's like gurgling up blood and like, 
and he falls to the ground. And then there's a shot of the killer, like dragging him away with that by the pickaxe handle. It's really well done. And like, you see the eyeball just like kind of like wrapped up the tip of the, the pickaxe. And it's just, I don't know. And, and yeah, you're right. Like the whole shot of him dragging the body, like the fact they let it linger really just sends like chills down your spine. Yeah, it is. It's quite impressive. The gore in this yeah. film overall is quite impressive. I think, I mean, it's it pretty it, very much so. Yeah. So that's the end of happy. Uh, we're at the mine. It's party time. The group shows up at the mine. They have oh, this party. Yeah. They have all their boxes of beer. It looks like a good fucking time. Yeah, I'd go. They're ready to party. Uh, we The sheriff is at his office now, and he actually gets a Valentine's Day box. Dun, dun, dun. And he is all freaked out about it to the point where he even, he even sends his deputy to get him coffee so that he can open it by himself because he's just anticipating what it is. But, Roger, it's just a sweet box of chocolates from poor Mabel. Oh, my God. Even after death, Mabel still continues to be so sweet. And these chocolates look great. I mean, these are high quality chocolates. Yes, they are. And she even has a little Valentine's Day card that says, be my Valentine. Love, Mabel. You just know this poor old, this old woman was smitten with, with him right off the bat, right? You could tell from the early scenes. So back at the party, it's in full swing, right? They're just drinking and having a gay old time. Until Axel is trying to get some loving from Sarah. He's like pulling her into him. And this is like, as I was mentioning earlier, this is a huge sign that this dude has some issues because he's like grabbing her. And she tells him first, she's being real nice about it, right? She's like, Oh, Axel, just stop it. And he won't stop it. And he like grabs her kind of aggressively and she yells at him. She's like, God, I told you to stop it. Uh, and then TJ mutters something up. Oh, you better back off. And Axel's like, oh, fuck you. We were perfectly fine until you showed back up in town. TJ gets in his face because Sarah says, do you mind? I can speak for myself. I have my own mouth. And TJ's like, well, why don't you use it? And Axel's like, what do you mean? He's like, Sarah, tell him. And she won't. So Axel or TJ has to tell Axel that Sarah wants to be with him again. They get into a fist fight until Hollis breaks it up. And TJ goes over to Sarah and tells her he didn't mean for that to happen. And she says, I just don't care anymore. Just leave me alone. They actually, it culminated in a fist fight between the two of them. Yeah. Axel ends up even storming out of the room. Uh, it's, it's really painting both of them to be equally red herrings. They both seem like total dicks at certain points. So it's hard to really gauge while this is happening though uh there is a moment where one of the friends and i can't even remember his name he's a smaller role wanders off to get a hot dog it's um it's david isn't it david it's david yeah is it david it is david you're right it's it's my my brother's name you think i would remember that if a character is named after my brother um (laughs) but so david wanders off cute little cherub i mean one of the younger ones in the group i would say goes to get a hot dog and is surprisingly boiled alive like his head is just submerged into the hot dog water uh it's not the best kill in the movie but i do like seeing his face with all the blisters like all over it as he's in the water um and it does pay off here in a bit uh he does come back to this character one more time yeah i do like you get the underwater you get like the the underwater shot 
of like his face in the water and you see like hot dogs floating by his face as his skin starts to like get melted off basically. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Now we are introduced to John and Sylvia. They kind of get their big moment, right? They are making out in the back room with all of the miners, uh, miners outfits hanging above them. And Sylvia's like, Oh my God, how do you get those down? And he's like, Oh, you just pull this string. And she does. One of them falls. It's kind of a cute little moment. They start kissing again. And she, she's like, do you know what we need? He's like, Oh, I have one right here. He pulls it out. It's a condom. (laughs) He jumps the gun a little bit because she's like, no, I was talking about beers. And he says he'll go get the beers, tells her to stay there, and he'll be right back. She has this really adorable little moment um, after he walks off where, and this is what I was saying, where there's like certain scenes where they linger on characters just a pinch longer to give them like some extra time to be human. I don't know. But she has this like little schoolgirl moment where she like, you know, runs her fingers through her hair and she kind of kicks her feet. And she's like, oh, I'm in love. I'm in love with him. And like, it's cute. It really is cute. It just gives her a little more depth. Because uh, Sylvia doesn't really do a whole lot overall. No, and she's a bit character, yeah. Yeah, she's a, one of the smaller characters. Um, meanwhile, there has been a moment where at the chief's office, a heart-shaped box appears on the street corner. And a bunch of a bunch of dogs are just looming over it. And it's just leaking. I mean, the presentation's there. It's got lace and frills all over it. But it's just leaking blood. You know it's a heart. Like, you know it's a heart. Uh, and he's got to shoo the dogs away and everything. And before he opens the box and lo and behold, he confirms that you, you they didn't stop the party. And he's like, what fucking party? God damn it. Uh, but now he knows he's got to get to the goddamn party. Gretchen and this other girl are in there, the kitchen, pouring more water into the hot dog pot. When John comes in to get the beer and as they're like pushing the hot dogs around, she actually pulls out a, a heart. That's in the pot. And they're like, ew, what's that? And John's like, oh, somebody must be playing a joke. As he's opening the refrigerator to grab the beer, we do we see Dave's body is inside the refrigerator. But nobody notices it because they're all transfixed about this heart being in this pot. Nice little moment. It, it reminded me it's of like great. Yeah, it reminded me of the slumber party massacre scene where the body keeps falling out of the refrigerator and nobody notices it. But it's just the the way that they play it here is really well done because they're all turning their attention to the heart. So even with him being in the fridge, he's not looking in that direction. He's distracted. And you get this really nice like close up on the face with like the burned, like pulpy wounds all over it. it it's really good. It's a great moment. I really like it. I love how they manage to reincorporate that kill again. At this point, Axel is also having a breakdown. Let's just be clear. He's crying. Axel has a full weeping sequence. Uh, well done. Uh, but he's very emotional. Everybody is really high strung right now. Feeling a lot of feelings. People are angry. People are heartbroken. We've got Sylvia. She's still waiting in this environment, though. And I've got to just take a moment to acknowledge, like, since we've been introduced to this setup, um, where this whole sequence takes place is probably one of the most terrifying locations in the film. Yes, it's just this like massive back room where the showers are, where all of these minor uh, costumes are are hung up on the ceiling. It's it's quite massive. It's quite, yeah, just creepy. I'd be creeped out. As she's laying there, Sylvia, played by Elaine Udi, she is 
she starts to notice that the some of the miners outfits above her start to like move right and you can tell she's like what's going on and as as and it just gets more and more aggressive like more and more of them start to move and she gets up and she's like john is that you nobody answers and then all of a sudden the showers start to turn on and she is kind of starting to get freaked out and all of a sudden these miners outfits start to drop from the ceiling and fall down on her. Like not just like one at a time, but like all of them to the point where she is getting very flustered and confused about where she's at because they keep falling in front of her. She's screaming as she's running down the body of happy falls in front of her. And she turns around to run and the miner is just right there. His, his light shining in her face, blood on his mask. He grabs her by the head hand on each side of her head, lifts her up as she's screaming, takes her into the shower area and impales her head on one of the shower nozzles. Pretty gnarly death scene. I honestly think this is one of the most, and I've used this word a few times today, but uh, I'm going to use it again. Visceral kills of the era. If not, honestly, if not of, of all time in, in horror cinema, I'm going to say it right now. This is one of my top 10 favorite kills. Um, A lot of it because of the sheer intensity in which when he grabs her by the head and just lifts her and swings her little body by the head um, all the way up to the shower. Uh, It's just so like raw and like it it feels ahead of its time. It doesn't feel like something you would have gotten from that era. Well, she is a tiny little thing. She, uh, guys, if you don't know, Elian Udi, I worked with Elian Udi on work with her, met her in person, and she's just like this tiny little thing. So to see this scene play out, like knowing how tiny and, and how tiny of a person she is, it, it makes it that just more, uh, like you said, visceral because she is impaled on this shower thing. And there is this, there is a shot of like her hanging from it as her hands are still like twitching and she's just hanging there. And then the the killer turns the faucet on. So the water starts coming out of her mouth because it's been impaled through the back of her head. What else really adds to this as well? Troy is the glare from the light again. I mean, I really think this just adds to the rawness of everything because there's a moment where she turns to run and she's blinded by the light. He's right there. And the whole time he's like lugging her around by her head, her face is illuminated in this light. Uh, it just adds to the whole moment even more. I, I don't know. It, it's really like what I mean it when I say it's one of my favorite kills. It gives you everything. The screams, her her acting, uh, his appearance, the build up to the appearance when all the, cost, when all the suits are dropping and everything. It, it's terrifying. Like she has every right to be horrified only to reveal this hulking mass killer who is strong enough to fucking force her little head in <laughs> into a shower nozzle. I mean, think of that. That's pretty blunt. That's a blunt item. That's a lot of force to get, to get her neck to like be able to support her up there. I don't know. It just, it's, it's a really violent kill. I love it. I would agree. It's one of the best kills of the eighties slasher era. I, I think we, we talk about, you know, we've, we've, reviewed so many slasher films, 80 slasher films so far in our, in this podcast. And there's always 
you know, I know we've talked about it like with an intruder, the movie Intruder. We've talked about some of those being one of the, you know, best death scenes of the 80s. But I really think this one is truly one of the best death scenes of the 80s, just how it's executed and everything. And then John comes back in and he hears the showers going. So he gets all excited thinking that she wants to take a shower with him. So he starts taking his shirt off. He goes into the shower room and finds her hanging there. And there's just this really effective shot of him, like dropping the six pack of beer and just staring at her hanging on the shower as the water's pouring out of her mouth with just shock and horror on it plastered across his face. The audio of the shower is another thing through this whole sequence that just amplifies it that much more because she hears the showers turning on. She sees them. She doesn't see who's doing it. And you can see her like, you know, as she's starting to realize that there's somebody else there, that the the fear is mounting, you know. Uh, but the, the sound of the running water of the showers continues over the whole, the whole sequence. And it gives it this extra layer of just discomfort. Um, and he sells the acting here. One thing I got to really say about this cast is anytime there's like a body reveal, again, other podcasts we've had, we've gotten down on some of the performances not being quite realistic or up to par i buy it when people hear fine bodies or panic or flip the shit like it is pretty damn well played oh yeah the acting in this film is very strong this is a strong cast the, the sheriff does get to the mine he like he he shows up but he turns around and leaves because he gets a call saying that that woman that lovely woman from the mental hospital tried to call him back but he wasn't there and she says it's urgent. So he turns around to go back to the police station so he could take the call because this was obviously the days before cell phones at the party. Okay. So a whole group of these party goers decide that they're going to go down into the mine. So we get Hollis, Patty, Sarah, Harriet, Howard, and Mike. They want to go explore the mine and Hollis is going to be their fearless leader. He's like, okay, we're going to ride down, but we're going to come right back up. And as they're headed out, of course, Axel comes out to yell at them. He's like, you guys can't do that. Hollis, you know the rule. No women in the mine. He's like, no, we're going to go down and we're going to come right back up. So they go into the mine. They get into the those mining cars that we've seen so many times in films. And they all have beer. This looks like a... This looks like a fucking blast. Oh, absolutely. I love roller coasters. So this, I was like, oh, I want to do this. I want to ride down this fucking mine. And they all seem like they're really enjoying it, too. Little do they know what's coming. No, they, well, Sarah does make the comment real quick. She's like, oh, it looks too dark down there. I guess I'm going to bow out. And Patty's like, no, no, no. If I'm going down, you're going down. So they ride this, these carts down into the mine. They get down there and it's a mine. I mean, it's, it's a maze of like cavernous walkways and that they want to explore. So Hollis agrees to take them in a small little tour. As they're walking, they see like this one long hallway and Holl- and they're like, oh, where's that go? And Hollis is like, oh, that's a that's an abandoned part of the mine. You can't go down there. And Harriet and Mike find this room. They call it what? They call it the, the boiler room or something. And they're like, oh, Hollis, we'll meet you back at the carts in 10 minutes. I'm like that. You guys are going to 10 minutes. That's pretty damn short, Mike. I wouldn't want to stay down there that long, though. Like, I even without a killer, like even without a pickaxe-wielding killer, would I want to be here in this space, in this dark, earth-bound space, down in the middle of 
fucking nowhere in these goddamn mines. Like, cool. Okay, I get it. The ride down there was fun. Take me back up immediately. I don't want to wander the space. And then just, like, being in that room, you know that room's going to give way eventually. Like, that room is down in the middle of fucking nowhere, in the middle of the earth. I I wouldn't want to be down there any longer than I had to be. Well, and, yeah, but they don't seem bothered by it. No, they don't. They're making out. Because they're blue-collar fools. Yeah, they're making out in this room. Is And like I said, it just killed me that he's like 10 minutes. I'm like, what are you going to accomplish in 10 minutes? Especially when they get into the room and they lay down. They're certainly not like rushing, right? It's certainly not a quickie because they're laying next to each other, kissing. Are they not worried that the group is going to like leave them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I don't want to see it, I definitely don't want to fucking make love in it. Like, this is gross. That poor woman deserves to be treated better. Now we go back up top and we get a basically all hell breaks loose because Gretchen comes running out of the kitchen screaming because she found Dave's body. At the same time, John comes busting through the door, falling on the floor, staggering, talking about Sylvia being dead. Axel comes in and is like, everyone, Dave's dead. Sylvia's dead. You got to get the fuck out of here. TJ tries to make a call. The phone's dead. He does tell Axel, oh my God, Sarah and the rest of the people are in the mine. We have to go get them. So everyone else leaves the party except Axel and TJ, who now, who have been, you know, at each other's throats the entire movie. Now they have to actually work together to go get Sarah, you know, to make sure she's safe. It's a nice twist. I like it. It is a nice twist. twist. Yeah. They, they, they get in the elevator and they ride it down into the mine. I love that moment when Gretchen comes running out like, oh my God, she's dead or his body, like whatever she says. That whole moment where like shit hits the fan and everyone just loses their shit. That's what I was talking about earlier. This is the kind of just complete fucking like terror and shock and confusion and complete lack of inability to actually plan anything or make any kind of sense. You're just so traumatized because you found a bit like a boiled body in a fridge. Like I wouldn't be able to be like, let's decide for the next step in the plan. I'd be like, get me the fuck out of here. Like take me to the police. So and that's what a lot of them do. They just take off. Oh, they don't, they don't stick around. They, they, sque- they get in their cars and they get the fuck out of there. The only two that stay are, like I said, Axel and TJ to go get the, the guys, the, well, they want to get Sarah, but they want to get the other people too. Right. Uh, there is a scene where Ho- the two girls are just standing there, um, Sarah and Patty, and Hollis jumps out and scares them. They continue exploring. Uh, they're down like this one hallway, and uh, Hollis is like, um, you know, this this place hasn't been explored since Harry Warden was here. And then all of a sudden, Howard drops down from the fucking ceiling. It's funny. To, to, scre- to scream and scare them. I love it. I'm not going to lie. That was really funny. Yeah, how do you get up there? I well, I think like it's because they work down there. They probably know the ins and outs of this place, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's Howard is definitely the the jokester, right? Oh he's, yeah, he's a fun character. We we do then start to hear once Howard gets down from the ceiling, we start to hear the heavy breathing, <sighs> and then the group starts to hear noises and it's very apparent what it is but they're acting like they don't know what it is like even how uh howard's like oh that must or hollis is like that must be rats but it, it is the miner busting the light bulbs with the pickaxe you can clearly hear that's what it is that visual is pretty striking of him when he's walking down that hallway just busting 
busting the bulbs. It's a it's a really creepy visual. Well, and it's a smart thing for him to do too, right? I mean, you get these people down there in the dark, they're going to be helpless because this is just one giant labyrinth of, of mazes that if you're not familiar with this mine, you are going to be fucked, which we find out. I mean, these girls have no idea where they're going in this mine. Uh, we do cut to town where the sheriff is leaving the sheriff office again. So we're assuming he made the phone call. We don't really, it's not really revealed yet what, you know, the, the, the uh, lady at the mental hospital told him, but as he's getting his car, the, another car comes squealing by and it is Tommy. The sheriff like blocks his car. and's like, why are you driving like a bat out of hell? And they get out and tell him you got, you have to get to the mine. Uh, Harry Warden showed up and he started killing everybody. Sylvia's dead. Uh, Dave's dead. You got to get out there. So what's the sheriff do? He gets in the car, makes the radio call to send in all the backup they can to the mine because there is some trouble out there. This whole final 20 minutes or so does a really good job of like building up the suspense of, are they going to get there in time? Like you don't know exactly which way this film is going to go. You don't know who's going to turn out to be the killer. There's still several people you're suspecting. Uh, There's still a good amount of people trapped within the mine. Like, you know, we're closing in on the final stretch and they still got my attention. This movie really builds up to quite a fantastic climax. Yeah, it's very action packed and it's pretty intense. The group runs into TJ, who's down in the mine now, and he informs them basically that Harry Warden's back and he killed the people up top. Uh, and Hollis is like, I got to go get Mike and Harriet. So he just takes off running like from the group. God damn it, Hollis. I know. He just takes off running. They're, they're trying to tell him to come back, but he's like, no, I got to get Mike and Harriet. So he goes into that room and he finds them impaled together with a, like a, it looks like a giant drill bit. Yeah, you know, I'll say they tried to do a whole, like, surprise reveal here. And since this movie is a film built upon great kill sequences, this felt quite uh, disappointing. That I didn't get to see how that drill bit pierced through those two individuals. And it's and, it, and another thing is that it's really difficult to tell, like, what what it is, like, what happened to them. Uh, even in the, the the cleaned up version, it's really hard to see what it is. But it, I, I, apparently, it's a drill bit. They were they were Jeff and Sandra, right from Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. They were fucking the killer. Must have came up and jabbed the drill bit through them. Wish I could have seen it. I me too. I mean, that would have been a pretty. I, I don't want to say simple, but it would have of all the other elaborate death scenes that they pulled off. This one would have been a pretty easy effect to, to, to do right. To show yeah, us. Yeah. But we don't, we don't get to see it. I, I know what they were going for. I, to me, like I'm with you, it kind of falls flat for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the miner does show up with a fucking nail gun that he loads and proceeds to surprise Hollis with his light helmet and shoot him in the head. Not once, but twice with this fucking nail gun. Once in like the temple and once straight in the forehead. I think this is low key the standout kill in the movie, to be honest. Mm. It's filmed in a a way that's very uh, complimentary to what's happening. Uh, The first nail comes out of the blue. It just, bam, it hits. And 
you don't really see how long the nail is right away, but you get a great POV shot from Hollis's angle of everything starting to go really soft, focused, blurry, uh, because he's got a nail through his fucking brain, but he's still kind of conscious. Then the killer loads up the, the gun again, and we get this really cool shot down like the barrel of the of the nail gun down his arm as he as he hits it right in the middle of Hollis's forehead. And when he loads up the nail, you see like these are like fucking like these are like woodsman nails. These are big fucking nails. Uh, and it just takes two of them to, to, to kill Hollis. But it is a pretty nasty kill. Like when you think of like the force of shoving that through your skull into your brain, like that's that's a rough kill. I like this kill a lot. I think it doesn't get a lot of credit. It should get more. It's effective, especially how he reacts. Like he reacts how I really think that someone would react. He's dazed, confused. He's like stumbling to the point where he, Howard, Sarah and Patty are are standing there waiting for him when all of a sudden he just stumbles around the corner and collapses and his, he's dead. Now his, his head has these two nails and it's gushing out blood. This is the point when in the film where Patty just turns into a fucking hysterical mess. I mean, she's screaming, crying for the rest of the film, kind of basically helpless because they see the miner coming down the the tunnel and she doesn't, they can't get her to leave. Like she's like, I don't want to leave him. And fucking Howard's like, fuck this. I'm out of here. He takes off running and leaves the girl. He leaves Sarah and Patty there uh, and just takes off. I mean, I can't say I blame him, but it's kind of a dick move. Patty won't get up like and t- finally like Sarah has to slap her fucking in the face. This is when Sarah starts really like not dealing with any fucking nonsense. I like this about Sarah. Sarah's like, get your fucking shit together. She smacks her upside the head. She's like, come on, pick up your shit. Let's get fucking moving. Red dress. Like I'm, Patty's in this goddamn red dress, by the way. It's so gaudy. I, I, but I would wear it. I like it. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad dress. It's just very red. It looks great on camera. It really does. Yeah, I I appreciate that Sarah is just not dealing with it at all. Well, as she should not because you have a fucking deranged killer with a pickaxe coming right towards you. However, Axel just pops out of nowhere. And he's like, come on, we got to go. He leads them to the elevator as Patty is whining the whole time. Like the whole time she's like, I can't do this. I can't make it anymore. Let's just stop. And they're like, come on, bitch, come on. Until they come to like this Y point in the, in the tunnel and they hear someone coming down the other tunnel next to them. So Axel grabs a big old fucking log. And as the person emerges, swings it and hits him in the stomach. And lo and behold, it's TJ. And he's like, why the fuck did you do that for? At this point, they're really doing a good job of, of keeping you thinking that TJ is going to be the killer. Yeah. And uh, Axel's like, I thought you were Harry Ward. And he's like, do I look like Harry Ward to you? So TJ's like, come on, we got to go. So he they, they, they take off back to the elevator. But when they get there, uh, the panel, control panel has been smashed. So now there's like, they can't take the elevator back up. So where are they going to go? Well, Axel's like, come on, we got to go. They go to the ladder to climb up and I'm thinking how fucking they're 2000 feet, right? That's what they say in the film. It's 2000 yeah. feet down. They're going to climb a fucking 2000 foot ladder. Fuck that. How, how Fuck roughly that. how high would that be? Give me an idea. 
I mean, well, think about it. 5,200 5, feet, mm-hmm. 5,280 feet is a mile, right? So you're talking a fucking almost a half a mile. I There is no way I am climbing that flimsy fucking ladder a half a mile. Especially in those goddamn heels. Oh, no. I, I, I'm fucking, that's one thing. I'm deathly afraid of heights. So that would not happen. Nope, Same. nope, nope. Agreed. So, yeah. but the, he takes them up the ladder. And of course, Patty is just bitching the whole time. I can't do this. Let me just, and th- there's a point where she just fucking stops. She's like, I'm not going anywhere. I get it though. Well, I do too, but uh, there's people behind you that want to, that want to get to safety. Yeah. You know, they should have just, of course. Then they're like, Sarah help her. And Sarah's like, God damn it. Yes. Yeah, she... God damn it, Patty. So Sarah gets like, like gets climbs on top of her virtually. And so, so they're like climbing in unison when all of a sudden fucking Howard's body comes falling down from a fucking tied to a rope. And there is this moment where like his, because of the force of the, of the body falling, his head is like snapped off and the rest of the, bo- Oh my God. It looks wild though. Yeah. The rest of the body falls to the bottom. It's a good reveal. I mean, at least we find out what happened to Howard's coward ass that took off running and leaving the girls, right? That decapitation shot, though, like the flesh that's remaining at the bottom of the neck and everything, it's it's pretty gross. And you see the body like fall all the way down the shaft. I love it. Yeah, so they TJ's immediately like, nope, nope, climb back down, climb back down, go back down. So they go back down uh, and they get back to the bottom. You do see the uh, Howard's headless body laying there. Axel's like, I know a shortcut. You got to follow me. He takes him down the shortcut that literally is like this rickety fucking bridge. There's this huge sign that says, beware of the water, 60 foot depths. But they have to cross this, the ricketyest fucking bridge I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, fuck that too. Axel's like, go ahead, go, go up ahead of me. Take the girls, go up ahead of me and let me know when you get up there safely. So TJ leads the girls to the end of the bridge. And he's like, Axel, we made it. Come on. And then all of a sudden you hear uh, Axel like grunt, like, uh, like he's been hit and then a huge splash into the water. So they run back to where he was and you see that the railing has been broken and you see like, all you see is like these bubbles in the water and Axel's helmet slowly sinking down. And of course they're like, God help him, help him. And teachers like, there's nothing we can do. It's 60 feet deep. I will say that Sarah doesn't really seem all all that torn up that Axel just fell into a fucking thing and is drowning. I mean, she's probably thinking this is a way easier outcome for her than having to pick one. I, I, yeah, it's just making it. You're probably right. Yeah, because she doesn't seem all too tore up about it. She's like, oh, okay, come on, let's go. So they they take off running and TJ is like leads him to this. I mean, this fucking thing, how big is this fucking mine? Because now there's another sort of uh, Y shape in this mine where TJ's like, you guys go this way and I'm going to go this way. So they break up. And as the girls are going, they hear like a, something collapse and they run back and they, they call for TJ. He doesn't answer. Sarah's like, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. So they, she leads Patty down this path. He was still crying and moaning, but as they approach a corner, the miner jumps out and fucking slams his pickaxe in Patty's stomach. You could tell Patty was waiting for this, this moment. 
because she takes this death and she just milks it for every second, every frame of cinema. She just milks it. Well, I was like, oh my gosh, Patty almost made it. She almost made it. But she was incapable of doing anything. Yeah, she just became a bumbling mess. I mean, she definitely lost her shit. And this whole sequence does a really good job of like, you know, when they split him up and have him go the one way and he tells them to go the other, it's very suspect. It's very suspicious. Like, I'm really thinking at this point that that TJ is the killer. Yeah. I'm wondering why he had them split up. You know, there's really, it's never really explained what the purpose was, except to, again, paint him as possibly being the killer. Uh, and then again, Sarah is by herself crying. And then we get this hand coming towards her to grab her, but it's just TJ. He comes up behind her and grabs her without saying anything. Like, you know, that this fucking killer is out there. So what are you going to do? You're going to sneak up on your girlfriend and just grab her instead of being like, Hey, Sarah, here I am. Of course it scares the shit out of her, but they take off running. He takes her back to the carts, the coal carts, gets them started as the fucking Harry Warden miner shows up with his pickaxe and they hop in the cart. He hops in with them and it's basically a chasing from cart to cart. Something you'd see like out of the three stooges, (laughs) literally. Yeah, but it's it's pretty intense. Like the, you know, they're going uphill, so they're go, they're trying to get back to the top. The the killer is pretty like damn determined to prevent that from happening. I mean, like this whole battle is pretty wild. Eventually they get knocked off of the carts and they're kind of fighting along this like pathway that that runs down um the tr- alongside the track. But like it's it's kind of like a balls to the walls fight. Like they really are giving it their all. And that whole segment of them on those carts, I think is pretty um, adrenaline pumping, you know, it is. It just reminded me of like something you'd see like, like the three stooges or something where like they're, they're literally hopping from cart to cart being chased. You know what I mean? But it is, it's pretty suspenseful. They, they do get out of the cart. Well, the miner knocks TJ out of the cart. And so Sarah jumps out too. And there is a battle um, between a, between the miner and TJ's as TJ's protecting himself with a shovel. The miner is swinging the pickaxe. He does get Sarah and him into a, like a, a separate little room. Yeah. It's called something. There's a sign on top of it. I don't remember what they call it, but it's, it's a separate little room. It's, it's off of the main path of the mine. And there's, again, it's just, it's a knockout drag him out fight. Um, to the point where, the miner knocks TJ down and is going to hit him with the pickaxe when Sarah comes up behind him with a big old fucking rock and bashes him in the back with it. He not, he knocks TJ down again and swings his pickaxe, but it gets stuck in the wall and he can't get it out. So he pulls out his knife and he's going down to stab TJ when Sarah quickly thinks to pull the mask off of him to reveal that it's Axel. Oh my God. Who'd have thought? I was not thinking that would be the case at all at this point. Though his him drowning did seem like there had to be more. To yeah, because for such a that was my thing. For such a prominent character, to kill him off like that would have been a huge like cheat or disservice. Like this is a main character, and you're gonna give him an on off screen lame death like that, where we don't even know what happened to him. 
Uh, but uh, TJ looks up at him and he's like, Axel, why? And we get this flashback and we find out that one of these supervisors 20 years ago that was murdered by the real Harry Warden was Axel's father. And Axel was actually in the room hiding under the bed and saw the whole thing. Yeah. So that that's the extra like tidbits that they gave us at the beginning, though it seemed kind of exaggerated. That's why it was so exaggerated and so specific um, because it all ties back into why he is this deep seated hatred for these Valentine's day dances. Because his father was murdered on Valentine's day because of right. The Valentine's dance. So when he's distracted, like he has, he's having this flashback. You can tell he's in a trance Axel or TJ picks up a, a big boulder and slams it into his chest and knocks him backwards. What's not, which knocks him into like the, um, the wooden beams and collapses the, basically the collapses the, that part of the mind so that he's trapped TJ and Sarah get out just as the sheriff and mayor and the whole cavalcade show up. It's revealed that, you know, they tell him that it's not Harry Ward and the sheriff's like, I know, um, I got a call back from the mental hospital and Harry Warden died five years ago. And the mayor's like, well, who is it then? And he's just like, it's Axel. So they run into the room and the mayor's like, oh my God, that makes sense because, you know, Harry Warden killed Axel's father on Valentine's day. And as TJ and Sarah are kind of leaving, one of the workers or one of the emergency workers is like, he's still alive. And Sarah's like, I want to go back and see him. So she, they run into the room and they see that it is like his arm. He ripped his own arm off, right? Because his arm was his arm was caught on a beam. So he must have ripped his whole, his whole arm off. And they see him yeah. and he's on the other side. They can't get to him because it's just a small opening. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. here I come, Harry Warden. This whole town is going to be killed. And he's like, Sarah. Be my bloody Valentine. <laughs> Maniacal laugh and takes off. And the film basically ends with another laughter. And then the credits have a nice original theme song. Yeah, it's, it does. It does have that, that theme song. Um, one thing I really like about like the build up to the finale, as you have the two protagonists, now they've been established the protagonist because it's, Revealed that it's Axel who's the killer. You have Sarah and TJ trying to make it up the hill or up, up, you know, up the track uh, by whatever means necessary. While you have the police force and the mayor and all of them running down, it's like literally down to the second. Like they make every minute, every second of this feel like it counts. Um, it really is like just mounting and swelling suspense. Um, and I do think that this film does have one of the best payoffs in the sense of a grand finale compared to a lot of other films of the genre, especially earlier ones. Um, I do feel that, you know, when this movie, when it hits, when it hits and hits hard, it makes for some of the most memorable sequences within the genre. Like this movie does not, I think, get enough recognition as one of the defining slashers that really set the blueprint for what we expect from the genre today. I would agree. I mean, this was still early in the eighties. People need to realize this. This was released in 1981, uh, probably filmed in, in mid 1980, late 1980s. So it was just 
just the start of the slasher boom of the 80s. You know, I mean, think of the film. The only really films that had come before this were Halloween, Friday the 13th, um, and a few of the other other ones. And this whole the whole basis of this film where the, the film producers saw the success of Halloween and Friday the 13th and wanted to cash in on it. And they were thinking, what is one holiday that doesn't have a horror movie revolve around it? And they came up with Valentine's Day and they filmed the film under the title of the secret because they did not want it to get out that they were making a Valentine's themed horror film because they didn't want the idea stolen because holiday horror films were all the rage at this time. But I really appreciate the fact that they went in a completely different direction with the film and gave us, like I said, a more an adult, an adult cast, you know, instead of doing the camp counselor, the, the babysitters, the, anything like that, this is a, a blue collar, small town, and you are right. I mean, this film to me set the standard for what a effective kill scene should really look like in a slasher film. So I, the film does not get enough credit for that. And I wonder if the fact that it was released heavily cut absolutely at the time, if that played into it, because if, like I said, if you watch the, just the VHS heavily cut version of this film, it's not gory. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that had a huge, played a huge factor in it because those scenes I think were originally conceptualized to be violent. When you remove that from it, you remove the, uh, the core pacing and intention of the scene, you know? So at least now we're able to see it pretty close to what it was originally visualized to be. Uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, uh, that cut that was released on Blu-ray because it really does add a whole other layer to this film. And it makes it, I think that much more enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, I remember like the V the, the DVD version that came out that had the, uh, the original uncut scenes, but you had to like, you played the version you could play either version, but if you played the one with the uncut portions reinstated in the film, you could completely tell that they were not part of the original film. Does that make sense? Like the quality was really bad. It wasn't until the Blu-ray release yeah. that they really cleaned them up and made them look seamlessly yeah. embedded into the rest of the film. And you're right. It, it adds so much to the film in terms of impact because they literally are some of the most uh, creative and elaborate deaths out of that time period. You know, we're not just talking about, oh, someone gets a machete through their, you know, their throat slit with a machete. We're talking some pretty well thought out creative deaths that weren't being seen at the time. I mean, impaling on a shower head, being put in a fucking dryer, good stuff. And I, the film definitely deserves a lot more credit than what, what it got. However, I am pleased now that, oh, probably the last, what, 15, 20 years, it really has seen a, a resurgence in popularity. And I definitely easily say that this is a classic slasher film. It's it's I think it's finally sort of gotten the attention that it deserves for its impact on on the genre. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, that's that's my bloody Valentine. Uh, A good companion piece to Valentine, the one that came before it or the one that came after it. I'm saying it came before in terms of our podcast because we recorded Valentine uh, last week, but this is the OG folks. And so, yeah. Anything else you want to say about the film? I mean, I just really think that this 
movie, one of the reasons that it grabs my attention so quickly and maintains it is the cast is very, is standout. It's a lot of likable, relatable, like we said, blue collar individuals played very believably. So when the movie's not worried about killing and slashing and cutting and digging out hearts, uh, you're dealing with people who seem to be pretty damn well played, pretty well executed. And uh, you don't always get that from this era, from this genre. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the standout kills that really are just genre defining. And I think this movie is paced pretty damn well. It's never boring to me. You get thrown into this pretty quick. You know, like, right off the bat, shit's hitting the fan. Um, it, it never really lets up. You know, it, there's always bodies to be found. Somebody's getting their heart cut out. It, it's it's a well-paced movie. It's really well shot. It's just a very eloquently, elegantly made piece of film, I think. Yeah, and it was left wide open for a sequel. And unfortunately, that never happened. Um, maybe one day... You know, who knows? I mean, it's been, what, 40 years? I, I don't know what necessarily they could do, but it was left wide open for a sequel. I think the whole plan was for there to be a sequel, but the film was not a box office success like the producers thought it was going to be. So the sequel never got greenlit. But I know that the director, uh, George Mahelka, did an interview very recently where he talked about he had a very clear idea or he has a very clear idea for a sequel. I'd love yeah, it. So maybe... Hopefully, someday we'll get one. I know we got the remake. Hey, and that remake, you know, I forgot how, while the remake tells its own story, it keeps true to plenty of themes from this film. And um, I forgot just how well it did that, while being its own its own thing, standing on its own two feet. But I really enjoy that remake. I'm excited to talk about it with you. Yeah, well, there we go. We're, we're transitioning right into it. Our film for next week, folks, to, to close out February in the month of love is going to be the 2009 remake of My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, I'm pumped. So we are excited. We're pumped. We're going to talk about that. But yeah, and, and then we have some cool stuff coming up on our Patreon, guys. So don't forget, we have a Patreon. If you like what we're doing and you want bonus content, please check out the Patreon. We did our top three horror couples last week for our page February mini episode. And we are going to be reviewing on our Patreon for this month, Obsessed, starring the one and only Beyonce and Allie Larder. Yes. And then yes. Roger's pick is House of the Dead. House of no, the Dead. No, you can't wait for that, right? So if you want to hear these old queens talk about Beyonce, Allie Larder, House of the Dead, join our Patreon. Join it. Leave us some love. Leave us some reviews. Yeah, that's another thing. If you don't, yeah, if you don't want to join the Patreon, but you want to show us some love, the best thing you guys you guys could do seriously, the best thing you could do is go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever you listen to on Apple, and give us a five star review rating. Just click that little five star, submit, write something nice if you want. But that really is, you know, one of the best things you could do for a show like ours because the more ratings we get, the more positive ratings we get, the higher we show up in search engines for people searching for specific keywords for podcasts. Like if they're searching for horror movie podcasts, then ours will more than likely come up if it has more reviews. That's why they're important. So yeah, but yeah, that was my bloody Valentine. So guys tune in next week when we discuss my bloody Valentine <laughs> deja vu, but it's the 2009 version with hotties Jensen Ackles. Oh, and 
Kerr Smith. Jensen Eccles, yeah, And a screen queen in her own right, Miss Jamie King. I love Jamie King. I love her in Black Summer. Oh my God. Yeah, it's a real treat. It's a real treat. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it and then compare it to this because I think that'll that'll make for a good time. Oh, for sure. For sure. But guys, as always, thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Give us some feedback. If you agree, disagree, you love the film, follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, all that fun stuff. Twitter, Dark Night of the Pod. But guys, that's it. So have a wonderful night until next week. We love you. Don't lose your heart. Alrighty, listeners, we have a little extra post-Valentine Day treat for you. Right now, I am joined by actress Ellen Udi, who portrays Sylvia in My Bloody Valentine, the film we just discussed. Uh, she also has countless other uh, film and te- television role credits, such as Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, Stephen King's The Dead Zone, uh, lots of stuff. So, Ellen, thank you so, so much for uh, taking time out of your schedule to join me. Uh, my pleasure. And you forgot to mention Mrs. Claus. Oh, yeah. Well, I was, get, I was getting there. I was getting there. Yes. Me and uh, Helen have worked together. Uh, she was in my uh, Christmas theme slasher, Mrs. Claus. Mm-hmm. So we got to, to work together there and it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. So you went from Valentine's Day to Christmas. Yep, exactly. I've got it all covered. I just need Halloween now. Mm. Well, you know, that could be, uh, that could be possible. Yeah. So, so for our, just tell our audience, just uh, tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself for those of it that might be a little bit unfamiliar. Sure. Well, I am from Montreal, Canada. That's, that's where I grew up. Although I'm officially American because I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico but I, I grew up in Canada, and that's really where I got my start. I was really, I'm going to date myself, but I was, I was lucky to be, you know, a little teeny bopper during the original Canadian film boom, and they produced all sorts of crazy stuff, and that's where my bloody Valentine came from. And then uh, I went from there to Toronto, did a little bit of work, and by the time I was 18, I no. 21. I went to New York when I was 21, did a soap there. And on my 22nd birthday, I came to Los Angeles and I started working here as an actor. And uh, I've been really lucky that I've been acting all my life. And it's, it's, you know, I'm pretty old now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are all getting pretty old now. So, you know, I, I, was looking at you know how how long ago my bloody valentine came out and it does you know for me a kid growing up in the 80s it doesn't seem like it was that long ago right but then you're like oh my gosh it's 40 40 years ago yeah. is it really yeah it, yeah i would say that that's right yeah it came out in 81 yeah so 40 years yeah, ago crazy how old were you when you did my bloody valentine uh 13 no <laughs> 12 i wasn't born yet no uh no i i, I would i think i was 16 oh really okay yeah i was young i oh, was wow. young during yeah i was the youngest person on the on the, on the set and uh and i was pretty young yeah yeah i started my career i was very lucky i i might have been 17 actually come to think of it because pinball summer i must have been 16 pinball summer that was george mahalka's first movie and then this was his second movie and i might have been 17 yeah 
So you had worked with them before. So is that was that your like in to be part of My Bloody Valentine? Or how did you get involved with the Yeah, film? I was so lucky. You know, my father was really instrumental in getting me out there. I, I really I'm amazed by my father. He got me into theater school. He locked me in the basement and had me learn Lady Macbeth off by heart and, you know, directed me. And I was only 15 years old when I got to theater school. So, you know, he knew what it took to do something right. And then he would always find these things in the paper. Anyway, a film came to town and I, I decided that I wanted to be on the movie. I didn't really care what I did. I just wanted to experience what it was like to be on a movie. And I ended up being a production assistant for free. And I was a free production assistant. And it was a movie called He Shoots, He Scores with Vince Van Patten. And and, uh, Vince Van Patten was dating Farrah Fawcett at the time. And so he was a big deal. And he was a cutie. I had such a crush on him. I could barely speak around him. And then um, George Mahalka was the locations manager on that movie, just by chance. And then he put an ad in the paper, like, in, you know, like Craigslist, basically, for looking for uh, people for this movie, Pinball Summer, that he was producing or that he was directing. And uh, my father, again, saw that ad in the paper. And I went there. And the fact is, is that George had seen me in the production office anyway. So he he had seen me around as a little teeny bopper, you know, around the this production office. So when I came in for the audition, I think I had a little leg up there. And um, I remember doing this audition and it was with the first AD. This is for Pinball Summer. It was with the first AD. And the first AD was a terrible actor. He was awful. And he was flirting with, like the setup was flirting with girls on the beach. And and this guy was just so bad, such a bad actor that I couldn't, because of the kind of acting that I do, that I couldn't fake it. I was like, I was like, I am not interested in you. So, so <laughs> in the audition, I did the opposite of what was expected. I was just being myself. And they thought that was so funny. They thought it was funny. You know, they recognized the humor of it. I didn't know that I was being humorous, but that's what they recognized. And I think it was really, you know, so many combination of factors got me the job on Pinball Summer. And then I was really just lucky that when it came to his next movie, you know, George wanted to give me a part. He had to make sure that I could scream because apparently not all actors can scream. Like convincingly. Oh, yeah. Right. So my audition was I went over to the production office and I screamed my ass off. And they were like, okay, <laughs> he's a screamer. She knows how to scream. To this day, I've never had any trouble screaming, as some people may know. <laughs> so that's how I got that idea. That's how I got that job. So it was, ba- yeah, you're, you're working with him on Pinball Summer, got you the, uh, you know, the inn in my bloody Valentine. Yeah, but like, uh, you know, working for free as a production assistant on a movie got me to meet George Mahalka, who coincidentally put an ad out in a paper that my father saw 
You know what I mean? Like all of those things have to line up and it's pretty cool. They yeah, do. absolutely. And yeah, your, your scream um, is definitely a memorable one in the film. And we're going to, we're going to get to that, but, uh, oh, and, and yeah, Vincent Van Patten, I'm sure everyone remembers his blonde locks from a uh, hell night. Oh, is that what it, that was? Hell Knight? Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he was in Hell Knight. Yeah, another slasher film. Him and Linda Blair. Uh, oh, the, wow. The, yeah, it came out around the same time Monty Billy Valentine did, early 80s. Oh, wow. Yeah, speaking of which, okay, so My Billy Valentine came out pretty early in the 80s, kind of at the beginning of the slasher boom. You know, you know the yeah, 80s was definitely. kind of the, the golden yeah. era of yeah. the slasher film. Many of which were shot in Montreal. Actually. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my some of my favorite horror films are were shot in Canada. My favorite horror film of all time, obviously, is Black Christmas, which I believe was shot oh. in T- Toronto. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and it was My Bloody Valentine was shot in Canada, wasn't it as well? Yeah. It was shot in Canada. It was shot in Nova Scotia, but yeah. Canada. Okay. So, were you a were you a had you seen the the films like Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth, that had come before My Bloody Valentine? Before you, no, did it? I wasn't allowed to watch movies like that. I wasn't even allowed to watch TV except for except for on Saturdays, Saturday morning. So I was not exposed to a lot of stuff, and um, you know, I don't even think I had seen you know The Exorcist. I wasn't old enough to get into many horror movies i don't think i mean canada is pretty strict i don't know if it was 13 and up but no i had not i had not seen any horror movies by the time i did pinball uh, the uh, my bloody valentine i do not remember a single one so it's interesting and and your and your family uh, your parents didn't let you watch these types of movies so i'm assuming no when didn't. that when the film was done, they were probably in for a, a surprise when they saw the, the the content of the film, especially your scene, which I, I want to get to because I, I think your death scene in the film is probably the most memorable, um, not only in the film, but it I would and I, I would think a lot of slasher fans would agree that it's probably one of the most memorable deaths to come out of the 80s slasher era. Right. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah, you weren't seeing that level of, um, you know, intensity and the set design that went into your death scene. And so when you filmed that, I mean, how, how do you remember filming your, your, your scene? Oh, yeah, I do remember filming it because, again, I was a method actress. So, you know, I needed to be really scared, which was driving everybody on set also because I was a kid and they were adults and they, you know, they knew the difference between acting and, and you know, but I just couldn't see any other way around it. I, ha- I, I, I needed to be in a state of fear. So I was basically like doing my method acting thing in the corner, you know, trying to stay scared and spooked while they were setting up the lights and stuff. And I just, you know, I just really, I didn't know how to act. I hadn't been to theater school. Wait, had I been to theater school then? But the point is, is that I didn't know any other way to do it except to really do it, except to really be in the moment and be as scared as I could be. And so that's what I did. And I just remember being scared and I remember it being, you know, it was very helpful that the set was so good because it really was a mine. And those really were were miners outfits. What a treat. Nothing fake about it. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, just the atmosphere alone it was is pretty creepy. We discussed that in the episode, yeah. just that whole the whole aesthetic of all of those mining costumes hanging above you and yeah. when when they start slowly rocking and then it gets just more intense and more intense and then the the showers come on. And, yeah. You know, I mean, I I I'd be scared, you know. I mean, yeah. it wouldn't take it wouldn't take much to, you know, to scare me in that environment, but it your but your death scene is so just visceral, brutal. Um, and there's this brilliant shot when the minor, when you, a body drops from, it's actually the body of happy, I believe right. the, the, the town crazy Ralph character. Who's trying to warn all of you kids not to hit, hold the Valentine party. He gets his body drops in front of you and you turn to run. And the minor is right in front of you and grabs you by the head, like each, each side of your head and just carries you into the shower room. And it's, it's a really cool shot and it looks really like, how did they accomplish that? I'm assuming, was it a harness or how did, how did they do that? Yeah, I was on a dolly and I think Peter had a harness, but Peter is a pretty strong guy. I have to tell you, because he did lift me up by my head onto the shower head. So he did, he did do that. I only weighed, you know, 95 pounds, but still that's a lot of, that's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight, but yeah, but for, but for getting through the, getting through the stuff it we were on a dolly. Yeah. That's why the movement is kind of creepy. Like it's surreal, you know, but we were, yeah, there was a, a harness and a dolly and um, yeah, that's how we did that. Do you um, remember the first time you saw the completed film? You know, it's crazy. You asked me that and I cannot remember. I cannot remember specifics about it. Was there a premiere or was it just like? There was, there was a premiere, but it was kind of like, not like lights and newspapers and, you know, it wasn't like the Hollywood premiere at all. It was just, the film was opening. It had an opening night. And um, I think we saw it with paying tickets goers like people like it was the first night that it opened and it opened in a cinema and we went to see it and so did a bunch of people that just paid to get paid tickets to see it wow what was your do you remember yeah. do you remember your reaction to the film well i do remember this because i was young um and um i remember that people were laughing at some stuff in the movie theater and I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't know. But, you know, when I look at George's work, George has got a great sense of humor and there was funny stuff in it. But I was a young kid, you know, taking my part very, very seriously and believing in the town. And I think most of the actors, except for maybe Alfie, I mean, maybe the older actors, um, you know, like Paul Kelman gave a fantastic performance may he rest in peace absolutely yeah we did not know george's style we didn't know so it was so it was uh it was shocking it was surprising i won't say it was shocking but it was surprising it was surprising we weren't prepared for that but now that i look at the movie i love it i love the style and i love the you know the schmaltziness of it and i i just love that movie well, it is. I mean, it's it's become, and I was going to get to it, it's really become a a slasher staple. It's a classic at this point, and it, it's just so cool to see like every Valentine's Day, 
you know, people posting about it and it's, it gets a yeah. resurgence. And I guess that's the, that's the good thing about holiday themed horror films, right? Is that every right. year when that holiday comes around, people are going to discover these films and yeah. with Valentine's, my bloody Valentine, there's not a, a lot of other Valentine themed horror that films. Yeah, I mean, we, you think people would jump on that bandwagon. Well, there's the first, there's a second movie. There's the, 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 there's the remake of it. Have you have you seen the you know remake? What? I keep saying I'm going to go see that remake, and I never <laughs> do. Have you seen it? I have. I saw it in the theater. It was 3D, and it's actually not a bad remake. It, it it's pretty faithful to the original the, the 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 plot points, the major plot points of the original film. It's pretty faithful to, but it does it has its own style. It kind of does its own thing as well. Right. It's probably updated, you know, because that because it was so 80s, like it's got an 80s style. So I imagine that that was they added the the, the 21st century flair to it, you know. But that, but God, that was that was 2009. So that was over 10 years ago. I yeah, mean, crazy. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's how does I mean, when you look at the film and it, kind of its success and its legacy and it just continues year after year to, it seems like, grow a fan base, uh, I, I can imagine that was never really something you'd expected with this film, right? No, I mean, you know, I myself as an actor just took all my jobs seriously. I never expected to be, you know, a screen queen. I I, I just uh, didn't... Uh, didn't even think about it. And there were many, many years in between. It's really the internet mm -hmm. that let us know how popular this movie was getting because, you know, there was no fan club. There was no writing. There was no letters. There was no nothing until the internet. And suddenly people were, you know, finding me or finding the cast and putting up pages and asking questions or whatever. So really, I mean, a good 20 years or so, I would say, yeah, like maybe in 2000, suddenly we started to be aware that it was a thing, you know? I would imagine around that time, it was early 2000s that I think that they finally recovered all of the footage that was cut from the film. The film had to be severely cut by the MPA to get a R rating. Uh, so they cut out right. a lot of the gore. I mean, the, the the original version, I think, that was screened and that made it to, to home VHS is virtually goreless. Right. And that may contribute to why it's comedic in a lot of ways, too. Right. Because you don't get that guttural that guttural feeling that you do now in horror movies. No, and there's you know? a, there is a lot of little like black comedy elements that are inserted in the film. Like they find a they find the heart in the uh, pot of hot dogs, and they yeah think nothing of it. You know, <laughs> they're like, oh, somebody must be playing a joke, stuff like that. But it wasn't, I think, until the the that uh, uncut footage was recovered and restored and put into the film again that people really then, especially slasher fans, gained a a, a much a much better appreciation for the film and its impact on the slasher genre and films that came after because that the gore effects in this film are some of the best, some of the best set set pieces in, in 80s horror come from this film. Yeah. Your death scene when you watch it uncut, like the uncut version is just a whole new level of just brutal, brutal, brutal. And everything. Yeah. Looks you know, the, it's a very famous, uh, Los Angeles uh, special effects. Oh, God, I've forgotten the name of them. 
but they did the man who fell to earth like like they paid a lot of money to get the special effects right yeah, for sure so yeah um and also tom kovacs uh his death i'm sure you know this was the only thing that the only film that was not recovered so it was shot and apparently it would have outdone my death yeah it would have outdone my death in terms of gore and and suspense and all of that and they just you know cuts very quickly to them but i think they get skewered with the with the ice pick and and apparently it was a really bloody frightening scene you know so it's a pity that you know these things we'll never know <laughs> Yeah, you, you because yeah, that's the death. That's one of the few death scenes in the film that you don't actually see. That's happen. right, you just, you and it the, actually was the worst one. Oh yeah. wow! See, you see the aftermath, but you don't actually see yeah. it happen. So that's very interesting to know. Yeah, wow. I'm glad that what was recovered was recovered because it gives a whole new. It just the, the movie just packs that big more more of a punch when you actually have all of that back intact. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Do you have any like memorable like besides your filming your death scene, which I'm I'm assuming was probably a uh, you know a, a an experience in itself? But is there anything else from from this like anything memorable experiences from the set that you remember? Just did everyone get along? I mean, you have a few you have a few scenes that you're in with like the, the entire cast because it's a pretty large ensemble. So there's a lot of scenes with you it, with the group in the in the bar and. Yeah. decorating the union hall. I mean, do you do have anything specific? You know what? We all got along so well. I mean, it's not lore. It's truth. We, we had so much fun and we bonded like real friends on that movie. And we, you know, everybody was so different. There was no competitiveness and we just got along so well on that movie. Uh, uh, it was, it was just a lucky strike. I mean, you always have to look at the director because obviously he does the picking, right? And he just picked a cast that of good, of great people, kind, good, earnest folks, you know? So, you know, and a lot of us, so there were, there were a couple of vets on there. Sure. Keith and Alf, um, but um and people from the industry like Cynthia Dale. Um, but most of us were green and we were grateful, green and grateful and just having the time of our lives. And it was just we just adored each other. So that is true. That's absolutely true. And to this day, I still speak to everybody. Oh, see that that is still here. Well, that was my next question is, is you do you still stay in contact with anybody from the film? We oh, do. Wow, okay. Oh, yeah, we do. We absolutely do. Um, and uh, we love each other and we express it often. And, you know, it's funny, the older you get, the more you want everybody to know. You know, it's really, it's like your friends from high school. These are my friends from high school. I mean, I have high school friends, too. But, <laughs> you know, these are my other friends from high school that I will always love and always know, you know, deeply. Because we were all really young and so... It happened at the time where we were all forming. And yeah, it's, it's very, really special. You got to be part of this iconic, 
because I mean, the film is iconic now at this point, this iconic, this iconic piece of, yeah, yeah this iconic piece of film history. And then that, and iconic friendships formed. And, you know, I really think that George Mahalka, I've said this often, but I can't stop saying it. I think he's a genius because I saw him, um, uh, you know, I saw a pinball summer as well. And, you know, he didn't do anything. Nothing was incidental with him. You know, this is the movie he created. And I think he's a, got a really subtle, funny hand. I saw his short film too. He is a short film that, let, that lets me know that none of this was just, oh, incidental. He, 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 he did a really great movie and it's a fun movie to watch and you love everybody. And, you know, there's, it's just something special about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. The cast has great chemistry. Yeah. Everybody seems like a real a real person. It's that it's just that small town, you know, blue collar, you know, persona that each of the characters possess that that make them a lot more relatable than a lot of your other slasher films that were being produced at this time. One thing, I, one thing that people always bring up about my bloody Valentine, and I, I just read an article with with George. He actually did an interview, but everyone always talks about this is like the one movie that they really wish would have gotten a sequel and it just never happened. I don't, we don't, we'll never understand why that, why that occurred. We were all, uh, we were all expecting that eventually the popularity of it would, would produce something, but they went another way. They went with a re remake, you know, so now a sequel would be a very interesting thing, but you know, there is that fan film. My, my val uh, Valentine bluffs good for them, you know? Yeah, I mean that's you see that a lot of a lot of a lot of these young filmmakers are taking it upon themselves to continue stories of films that necessarily did not get a proper sequel. But they did the same thing with with Black Christmas. Uh -huh. There is a fan a fan film that just came out called It's Me Billy that is a direct sequel to the original Black Christmas because that's another one that never got a sequel. But yeah, maybe I mean you know what? Look at all of the films that in the last couple of years, all of these big name films that have come out that have gotten sequels. We just like today as, as we're recording this, the big one that just came out was the Texas chainsaw massacre. Oh, is it, has it come out in the theaters? No, it's uh, it, it, it debuted on Netflix, Oh wow! but it's a, it's, it, it's a direct sequel to the original film. They, they're, they're, you know, they're forgetting all of the other films in the franchise and doing a direct sequel. They did the same thing with Halloween Candyman. So who knows? Somebody out there. I think this film has such a huge fan base that eventually, hopefully sooner than later, we will see a sequel. I would love to see a. a I hope so. I think it's Paramount that owns it. Yeah. So Paramount has to step up. They have to step up. We need we need a petition. Let's do it and get yeah get George on board because he, he yeah get George on board to do something beautiful. He said he had an idea for a a sequel. Uh, he finally got a he finally came up with an idea that he uh, was okay with. He he said I do remember reading in the interview that he said he had several sequel uh, ideas pitched to him over the years, but he was not a fan of any of them until a more recent one came up and he really liked the direction that it was taking. So hopefully maybe we never know. Oh, neat. All right. Well, that's good. That's great news. An old lady. I don't know if I'm going to be in it cause I'd be dead. I would, I would have to have, uh, I don't know, <laughs> be the sister or something. I'm not sure how that would work. Well, you know, they, Hey, that could definitely be done. That could definitely be done. Maybe I resurrect as the killer. Who knows? See? Oh, see, yeah. you never know. You got, 
Well, no, it's be Mrs. Claus all over again. Mrs. Claus vibes. Yeah, you got because you really got yeah. to chew your sink your teeth into that role. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun, and that and that was that was great filmmaking too, Troy. I mean, it it's really it has it has that eighties flair. You're so talented. Oh, well, I appreciate. That. Um, and you you did it in such so you know a really short amount of time, considering and uh, you know yeah, fantastic. You're a fantastic. Well, filmmaker. thank you. I hope yeah we get to work together again soon. It will happen. Maybe, yeah, I think eventually. so. So I, I think I think slasher fans are, are just want to give you a huge thanks for for joining us and sharing some of the some of the information on the film. It, it was great stuff. Is there anything or like any projects that you are currently working on or working on in the near future? Yeah, I actually am really excited about. Yeah, but the one that's coming up immediately that I'm shooting in March is something called Disco Inferno. And it is part of a Netflix trilogy. Netflix is sponsoring new filmmakers. Dab it, what is Matt's last name? Oh, geez, Louise. Anyway, so it's part of a trilogy for Netflix. And my short bit is called uh, Disco Inferno. And I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it. I, d- I just don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it. But I can tell you that it's set in a disco that used to be a church. All that I can say, I'm pretty sure. So there's that. And then there's the upcoming Tin Roof movie, which mm-hmm. is all over the Facebooks right now. Um, they were getting our funds together for that. And I've worked with Rob Mello and Rebecca Reinhardt on a previous movie that now I can't think of the name of because uh, I don't have anything up in front of me. But yeah, so that is going to be really fun. And the the funniest thing about that is I've never been to summer camp like as a child and we're shooting it at a summer camp and we're staying in the books at the summer camp and I can't wait. It's going to be so fun. And I know a lot of the people on the crew, so it will be like summer camp. So I'm really excited about that. And they're, yeah, they're both talented, very, Rob and Very and talented and dedicated and just fun to be around. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's definitely going to be a fun shoot. So I'm excited about that one. And I I don't know what else I've got. You might know, you might know what I've got planned more than I do. I know of one because I've seen, I'm I'm friends with the director on Facebook and he's posted some images of the film. Oh, Deadly Dealings. Deadly Dealings, yes. Absolutely. It it looks beautiful. The the cinematography, the lighting. Well, we just shot it, which is why I, I, uh, it's not an upcoming shoot, but it's an upcoming project. And um, Adam Freeman is the director of that. And, and it's really like a fantasy horror. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be fantastic and i have seen footage from it and i'm going to be really really proud of it um he just had a really strong sense of direction and and it's it's going to be unique in that way and it's got a great story and uh, yep people will not be disappointed by that one yeah it looks great it looks great this i love i love i'm a big fan of of just beautiful lighting and you know, Italian giallo inspired lighting and the film definitely has that seventies aesthetic to it. So I was like, okay, this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking, I'm just looking really quickly at my (laughs) IMDB because I don't want to forget anybody. I'm trying to think if, if, you know, I just, I think the movies that have just come out or Jeff Schneider, 
but what else? My filmography. Just let me take a look here. Uh, Spleen, Savage, Vengeance, Jake Zelch, another fantastic filmmaker, is doing a remake of Savage Vengeance. I've seen the footage of that. It's still they're still working on it, and uh, but it, that is going to be really good too. Because you know, like you, I'm very picky about who. I work with and they have to have something super special going on. Like, you know, they have to be dedicated people like you, like Jake Selch, um, like Adam Freeman and, Oh, the haunting of the lady Jane. Ooh, thank God. I took a look at this. Um, the haunting of the lady Jane <laughs> is in post-production right now. I shot it in November, October in England on the canals in England. Oh, Oh, it is wow. eerie. It's a ghost story and it is so eerie and great. And, you know, lucky me, I got to go to England to shoot it. So Kamal Yildrim is um, is the person to thank for that. That is going to be coming out. And I know there's one more. Did he not put it in here? Yes, this. Oh, gosh, this is going to kill me. There is another movie coming out that I did. Why did he not put it up here? Oh, that's so upsetting. Because I cannot think right now. Jeez, I can't think, so I can't publicize him. I can't think of the name of the movie. And he's he's the kind of filmmaker that just wants to do the movie and doesn't bother to put it up on IMDb. So I, oh, Reflections of a Broken Memory. Oh, thank God. Okay. Reflections of a Broken Memory. Another fantastic movie. Director Marco Bazzi. I hope I say that properly. He is obviously Italian and um, it is a twisted sort of a horror movie. And I, I just, I don't even want to give it away, but it is, you know, it is Rosemary's Baby time 10, times 10. It is, it is fantastic. And the lead actor in it, Raphael Dubois, is chilling, chilling. And I can tell you right off the bat, because you know right away that he's a killer. It, it starts with him, you know. So I can tell you he's a killer and it's killing. And I am i can't wait for that to come out. So I've got a couple of movies I'm so proud of. Yeah, you're keeping busy. And um, and you still made time for, for little old me and our podcast here. So we... Well, because you're special, Troy. You really are talented. No, you really are. You're, you know, you're one, you're one of those top top guys that people are going to recognize you're so prolific too i mean you've done a lot of movies you're you're a vet at this point well hopefully I'm a, how many have you done well, how many i've have you only done? done three three feet well and how long though well we did the three we did three feature i did three feature films in a span of three years that's really amazing yeah and then you know i kind of wanted to take a break and then obviously co covid hit so that forced me really to take a break uh right but now I'm going full fledged with Mrs. Claus too, so I'm excited about that. So yeah, yeah, that'll be great. Oh, one more I have to mention now. I'm glad I'm <laughs> looking at my INDB so people don't kill me. Monty Light and Blood Covered Chocolate that will be coming out soon. Last year I was really I was working my butt off last year. Um, so these are all in post production. They'll be coming out, but it's going to be great. And that is a vampire, a very interesting vampire story. And again. Very unique vision, very original director, and uh, and it's going to be a smash as well. So, yeah, I'm excited. 
Well, folks, you got you heard it. You got to keep an eye out for all of these projects because she is yeah. just a busy, busy woman. And yeah. it sounds like most of them are are horror, so or have yeah. horror elements. So you're definitely yes. sticking, <laughs> definitely yeah, exactly. You're, you're sticking with the genre, which I'm entrenched. Us, yeah, I guess, <laughs> it's got me. <laughs> yeah, but again, uh, uh, Elena, I just wanted to thank you so so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for asking. It was yes, great. Yes, great it fun. was. And again, I hope that we can work together in the future. And if you have any, if you have any kind of final words for my bloody Valentine fans before we go, then feel I free. I can just say thank you all. I love you so much. Thank you for keeping the fires burning. We lost a. We we're, we're you know we're losing cast members. Losing Paul Kalman is huge. I think he's an unsung hero of that movie because he made it deep. And he was a heartthrob, and um, it's sad that he that he left us. But thanks, thanks to everybody for for keeping the the fires burning on my bloody Valentine. I appreciate it so much. And we appreciate you so much. So, <laughs> guys, again, thank you for for sticking with us through this episode. We hope you enjoyed the special little my bloody Valentine treat. And until next week, when we are uh, we are covering. Ironically, uh, Elaine, the remake of My Bloody Valentine oh, to close out February. Yeah, so awesome. we, we will see you next week. Bye, Troy. Bye, everyone. 